Trying to score from the plug today I sure could use a shot Zannies are helping but I need more Guess I'll smoke some pot I'm about to go insane Sometimes I need to go where everybody does cocaine And we always find a vein I want to fix and do some blow The troubles will go away I want to be where everybody does cocaine You should you dope, I'll smoke some crack Junkies are all the same I want to be where everybody does cocaine of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, Oro was created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to create a treatment by using compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, as well as all facets of addiction and alcoholism. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, yoga, fucking equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. They do it all, and everyone we know that has been there has really, really, really been affected positively by their experience. Check them out at oralrecovery.com and uh, read their reviews. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Soberlink. I imagine a large percentage of you have tried to get sober in the new year and failed. Not because anybody wanted to, but because none of us had anything keeping us accountable. After all, who would really know if we all drank? Soberlink is the only high-tech breathalyzer system that keeps you honest, especially when cravings get a little too loud. I love it because you can test at the same time every day, eliminating all testing anxiety. I love it also because the devices have built-in facial recognition, so it knows it's you that's testing. I also love that tamper sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, and of course, that friends and family receive instant text test results, hoping to rebuild trust and prevent relapses. 
Let 2024 be the year you finally make the change. Visit www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Sign up and get 50 bucks off your device. And if you are looking for an amazing recovery podcast, you need to check out our friends at Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, Dharma, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew, find Recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and I'm thrilled, thrilled, literally thrilled to pieces to bring you guys another episode of the Dopey podcast. I'm going to try to do my... The applause is back, which I like. We have a lot of stuff happening today. It's a lot of applause. There's a lot to get to. First, we need to celebrate some people recovering. Well, first, I'm going to say, today on the show, we have this woman, Dina LaFonte. She is a, a mountainside person, and I thought we were going to do some, like, recovery deal with her, but it turned out she brought the fucking dopey. So Dina LaFonte is on the show and the return of my father. But that's not worth that much cheering for, I don't think. Anyway... Also, more importantly, we are relaunching. I mean, I don't know if relaunching is really the word. We are, but we are re rolling out Dopey Patreon. There's so much fucking shit on Dopey Patreon. This week, we are starting our second show. And our second show, which will be on Tuesday, is going to be called, I think, The Dopey Tuesday Show. Every week on Patreon, you're going to get a preview of the Tuesday show. And this Tuesday show is called What Happened to Fentanyl J. I'm going to be quiet for a second just to let that sink in. Go to www.patreon.com slash dopey podcast. We do so much shit on Patreon. It's ridiculous. And I, I need you guys to sign up because, like, I'm killing myself making this show. And I think there's, like, 25,000 listeners of Dopey and there's, like, 500 patrons. So if you are a Dopey loyal listener, sign up to Patreon. There's video. There's audio. There's bonus shit. There's guest shit. There's a recovery meeting on Wednesdays. There's a Patreon Zoom the last Saturday of the month, which is tomorrow for anybody who listens to the show tonight. But I guess it's tonight no matter where you are. Anyway, also this week... We need to celebrate some anniversaries. A big, happy 26th anniversary, 26 years to the one and only Tracy Helton, the, uh, the heroine of Narcan. I forgot what her nickname was. She had so many good nicknames. She's been on the show a bunch of times. She has the gnarly, dopey. I can't think of her nickname. 
I think she's the queen of Narcan or the heroine of heroin. Anyway, we love you, Tracy. Congratulations on your uh, 26 years. And a big other... Hold on. Cheers. Cheers, guys. And a huge, hearty, hearty, hearty congratulations to Joe Dandrade, or Joe Dandrade. He is a longtime dope, celebrating 20 years, punk rocker. We love you, Joe. Congratulations. And as always, it is a total thrill for me to, uh, to bring the show. And did you guys hear the new... I don't know if it's newer than new, but it seems pretty new, which is Keith Richards doing Lou Reed waiting for the man. I think that's an important thing to mention on Dopey. I don't know when it came out. Ray Ray Brown just sent it to me, and I don't know what I think about it. Listen to it. I, I'm waiting for my man. I think it's from a Lou Reed tribute, The Power of the Heart. Let's look at the album. It seems like Keith is the only thing on this tribute. They were like, Lou Reed is a junkie and Keith Richards is a junkie. So let's put that shit together. It sounds pretty good, actually. Man, I love Keith. It's like, I, I wanted to, to somehow hate on Keith doing Lou Reed waiting for the man. But I have to say, with the full headphones on, it sounds so good. So, yeah, check it out. I That's on Spotify. I'm sure it's on Apple Music or wherever you listen to music. Keith doing Waiting for the Man. And last week, the one and only Truanon host, I think Truanon creator, Brace Belden, was on the show to critical uh, acclaim. And I got a, a weird email about him, so I'm going to read it. It says, hi, Dave. Long-term listener here. I was flooded with memories after listening to Brace on the recent episode. He spoke of the mighty Dr. Z, who was also a dealer of mine back in the San Francisco days. I actually adored that tiny, he was all of five feet tall, wild man. And being female, I imagine my relationship with him was quite different than Brace's, though always respectful. I remember the shooting of, of pigeons out some SRO window for sure. To the best of my knowledge, he was Jordanian, and not Egyptian, but don't quote me. When my boyfriend and I first met him in the mission, he had a huge guy with a shirt that read security who accompanied him around town. We thought that was hilarious. He could be abrasive and loud with the guys, but always a sing-song sweetness for me. My boyfriend and I had some really fun, fucked-up times hanging with him. He was always getting arrested, but usually got out quickly. I actually used one of his lawyers after a mess I landed myself in. With great sadness, I recently learned that he passed on. Dave, please give a special shout-out to Dr. Z. He was a San Francisco legend. Love you and the podcast, and thank you for usually being my company on Friday night. Hope to meet you someday. And she doesn't want me to say her name, so we're not going to say her name, but thank you for the email. 
I don't know if you get socks if you don't say your name, but it's okay. You don't need to say your name. You get socks. Send me the, uh, send me uh, your address and I'll send you some socks. And I fucking love that this lady also used to buy drugs from Dr. Z. And I think that might be the first time in the history of the show that anybody had the same dealer as the guest and wrote in um, that experience, which I think is amazing. Has anyone out there ever bought drugs from Tony Baloney in Lower Manhattan in the early 2000s, late 90s? That guy was a character. His real name was Mike. You call him up and his phone says, you have reached the voicemail of Tony Baloney. I would love to, uh, to go over. So I wonder if he's still alive. Tony Baloney, if you're listening, please send in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I also want to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by the good people at Mountainside, located in Canaan, Connecticut. And today on the show, we have Dina LaFonte, who is a counselor at Mountainside. They call her the Tailor of Transformation, and Dina brought the Dopey. Dopey would not exist without Mountainside, so it is a, a, a pure pleasure to always talk about them. I went there. I met Chris at Mountainside. I engaged in their uber spiritual program. I was a part of their full continuum of care. I only did the 28-day residential. Chris did the long-term. He did the aftercare. He did, he did a ton of stuff there. I've been involved with their coaching program. It's an amazing program. They do tons of spiritual programming. They do yoga. They do qigong. They do breath work. Um, so much good stuff. Check them out at mountainside.com slash dopey or call them at 888-833-4922. And if you do, please tell them that you heard about it on, on Dopey. And last weekend, I went out to Los Angeles on a Dopey pilgrimage. It was an incredible adventure. I got a ton of interviews for the show. I went on the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I don't know when they're going to air it, but I want to give a huge shout-out to Kaylee, who hooked that up. And I got to meet a bunch of really cool people. I didn't get to meet Kaylee, and I didn't get to see Margaret in person, but I did a bunch of interviews, and I stayed with my friend Jeremy, and I saw my friend Brad, and it was fucking cool. Like, there's going to be good, dopey shit. I don't want to, like, tell you all here, if you want to know about it, I did a video on Patreon. But one of the people that I went to see was dopey legend Margaret Cho. And I was talking to Margaret about you guys and about like how cool it is that we have each other and that I am incredibly grateful to the Dopey Nation, especially the Patreon members in the Dopey Nation. But what a cool thing, you know, like we're this we're this bunch of weirdos and we're together. And I really, 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 I don't think I tell you guys enough how grateful I am to be uh, in the Dopey Nation and to make the show. I fucking love it. And, you know, there is the Dopey Nation Facebook group and then there's the Dopey Podcast Facebook group and then there's all the social media. But whoever listens to Dopey, that is the Dopey Nation and I'm so honored and grateful and all the schmaltzy fucking words to say thank you for listening and thank you for being in it with me and always let your freak flag fly and love is the answer and all that shit but how 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 many mottos and bullshit do we need all right i i, I have another email to read that i really really like but first i need to say 
that this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good people in the Diamond Recovery Group. Having sponsors like the Diamond Recovery Group is so fucking good for the show. They sponsor DopeyCon IV. Hopefully they'll be back for DopeyCon 5, DopeyCon NYV, whatever you want to call it. The good people at Diamond Recovery Group are on a mission to help as many addicts as they can. They have three incredible rehab facilities down south. They have a spot in Atlanta. They have a spot in Florida. They have a spot in California. They have a 24-7 hotline that accepts texts. So if you're fucked up and you need some help, text the Diamond Recovery Group at 855-625-8124 anytime, day or night. And of course, call them, visit them at diamondrecoverygroup.com. They have an incredible co-occurring mental health facility designated to help people with co-occurring mental health disorders, as well as programs geared towards super young people. So check them out at diamondrecoverygroup.com. Please tell them that you found out about them from Dopey. All right, I got this email. I love this email. Where is this email? Where Here is this email. All right. Hey, Dave. My name is Devin. Female, LOL. And I've been listening to the show for quite some time now. I found it one day when I was down an Ibogaine podcast rabbit hole, which, by the way, your experience was a little lacking. But the story of driving to Canada was great. Needless to say, I was pretty hooked from then and decided to go all the way back to episode number one and vowed not to jump ahead, but instead just listen to them straight through. I was pretty crushed when I heard about Chris's passing, but you somehow managed to keep it going and made your props for that. I miss him for sure, but you're doing great and you are always my fave anyway. So I'm at 175 now and only 280 to get all cut up. But since I work long days and you're in my ear the whole time keeping me company, should get there in no time. A little about me. 44, married, one kid, and then she put in parentheses 25. But there's no way her kid is 25 if she's 44. Maybe she got married when she was 25. I don't know. I was deep in addiction for about 10 years, my entire 20s basically. Jail seven times, two felony distribution charges, rehab, house arrest, sleep time monitor, <clears throat> drug court, you name it. But I've been off the hard shit since 2008 after spending a few years in state prison. Admittedly, I do still drink, have the occasional hit of weed, but miles ahead of where I once was. So anyway, just wanted to hit you with the dopey. Hope that's still a thing, LOL. One day, my brother, boyfriend at the time, and I decided to go on a hike at the beautiful Ricketts Glen in Pennsylvania. It's got like 20-some giant waterfalls, and it's pretty fucking treacherous terrain. One little slip on a wet rock and you're falling 80 feet to your potential death. So what's the best thing you could do at a place like that? That's correct. Drop a bunch of acid. The trail starts at the top and it was about 5 p.m. when we dropped the LSD and started our way down. It was great and we safely made it to the bottom where my brother decided we should just finish what was left in his little breath mint dropper. Great plan. Only it started getting dark suddenly. And then it started fucking raining. 
We still had a several mile hike back up the cliff on the other side of the gorge. My brother was really into caving at the time, and he just so happened to have a headlamp with about half battery life left. Fuck, man, the panic that set in. I'll never forget it. I remember basically crawling on my hands and knees on sharp rocks and mud, just praying none of us fell. Mind you, this was well before cell phone days. Anyway, by some miracle of God, we made it up to a main road. The gorge has several entrances, and I think we just went straight up, off the path just to get to a road. Our car was parked another mile or so away. So not only were we tripping fucking face, soaked and covered in mud, and it was dark, and we're walking along a pretty traveled road with bright-ass headlights coming at us, Wow, what the passing cars must have thought. Ha, ha, ha. It was a very silent ride home from there. All of us in pure shock as to what had just happened. But we're all still here to tell the tale. And by the way, that was the last time I took LSD. LOL. I think it's interesting that she says ha, ha, ha and LOL. Side note that you don't have to read on the show. I'm going to read it. If you, have, if you even read the first part, which you, of course, can I'm coming to New York City for the first time other than to cop dope in Brooklyn many years ago, but we're coming to see a concert on March 9th. I told my husband that no matter what we're going to catches, Katz's, which he agreed reluctantly since we're definitely not city people, LOL. But I'm really hoping to see you and get to say hi. It will make my first time to New York City even better. Love you, Dave. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles. And that is Devin. Thank you, Devin. You get dopey socks. Appreciate the story. We need dopey stories. We especially need fucked up dopey voicemails that are around four minutes long, riddled with details and comedy. So if you have a good drug story that you love to tell, make it four minutes and send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And you can get socks and maybe some stickers if it's really good. Oh, shit, I have, I have a voicemail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it. Hold on. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dopey Nation. This is Miles from California. And in episode 451, you and Ray Brown were uh, talking about reading an email about methadone, and two questions came up that I wanted to give you my uh, – one about some insight and one about a story. So you asked if, it's, if it actually is effective against pain, and it really is. Um, in fact, it's, it's inexpensive, it's long-lasting, and very effective – the main problem that people in the pain management industry seem to have with it is its reputation. It's known for, uh, you know, us junkies using it to get off heroin and whatnot, and uh, and therefore people are reluctant to to receive it. The patients, anyway. The other question is whether you can shoot it, and that leads me to my story. So I was on methadone back in the day, and uh, um, I was. It was during. It was when nine eleven happened in two thousand one, and Dave, I know you have your own story about that. Uh, but the clinic I was in in South Florida, they uh, there was 9/11, and then there was right after that a tropical storm, and it was just like supply chain issues, and everyone was panicking, no one knew what was happening next, and um, so the clinic said, "All right, we're going to give everyone a week of take homes." And at that point, I don't think I had any take homes. I was there seven days a week, and um, so they they you know it was like emergency, and the storm was raging outside the building, and they uh, they gave me my seven take-homes and they forgot to put juice or water in them it was straight up the liquid methadone straight out of the machine 80 milligrams per bottle times seven bottles took them home and it's like hmm 
I wonder if I can shoot this. And I was an IV heroin addict at the time. And uh, so I tried one and was like, pretty good. It's like, you, you, it's not the heroin rush, but you could definitely feel it. And uh, way more effective, and, you know, in the, it came on so quickly than uh, just drinking it. So guess what happened? Uh, I had seven days worth of take-homes that I used that day. <laughs> and so there I was, six days left, no methadone. And, uh, well, I was sick as a dog until I was able to connect with my, my plug and, uh, and re-upped on heroin and, you know, another relapse and the usual story. I wasn't, I took me many years after that to get into recovery and to actually get my shit together. Anyway, that's my story. And, uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation and fucking toodles for Chris. That is a perfect voicemail. Thank you, Miles from California. And that's how you do it. You hear something on the show and you have a story that's kind of like the thing you heard on the show and you tell the story. And it amazes me, it amazes me that I haven't heard about more people who shot methadone. It amazes me that I didn't even consider shooting methadone. It also amazes me that Miles had take-homes and, and rushed through them all so fast. Like, I was so scared of losing my, rushing through my take-homes or running out or that was like my biggest fear. <laughs> be honest with you that's the take-homes were so precious to me does anyone else have any methadone shooting stories and why haven't i heard any before i think that's odd as well all right so we have dina lafonte coming on the show she has the fucking dopey she's like some crazy meth addict who took baths and coca-cola to to relieve her of her psychosis and a lot of other stuff that's just like the greatest the greatest uh sidebar we sat down to do um, a little recording about like tips to keep you sober, and she just like offhandedly mentioned, "Oh, I used to take baths in Coca Cola when I was strung out on meth." It's like, okay, we gotta we gotta do the whole story. But before we get to Dina's whole story, I need to say that this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good people at Discover Recovery, Chris Paulson. Friend of the show, friend of mine, great dopey guest, brother of Cadillac Ron Paulson, is an addict in recovery, is a therapist and a social worker. And he realized that the Pacific Northwest was a community that was incredibly underserved, which is why he started Discover Recovery. Two locations for detox and residential treatment up in Washington State. The best treatment anywhere available in the Pacific Northwest, supposedly. But I believe him when he says that. There's this crack medical staff team on site. They don't have crack. It means there are good medical staff, physicians who are there seven days a week. They are striving to provide the best treatment possible in a region that has historically been underserved. Everybody there are master's level therapists, substance use disorder, counselors, psychiatric services, and much more than anything else in the region. They have luxury accommodations. And then I'm going to read the great Chris Paulson quote. First, go to discoveryrecovery.com. Tell them that you heard about it from Dopey. But here's my favorite Chris Paulson quote. I'm not great at selling. We operate with integrity. You personally know one of the co-founders. We are trying to do right by those we serve and have a proven track record. For more information, check out our website. Or more importantly, check out our reviews and you can learn the skinny of Discover Recovery. 
And now here is Dina LaFonte. Actually, real quick, before we get to Dina, I need to give a crazy big shout out to Australian super dope Ben Prostakowitz, Prostasowitz, who celebrated two years clean and sober in late January. And I've been trying to celebrate him since then. Congratulations, Ben. We need a good Australian voicemail. Damien is supposedly on deck for one. What I'm saying is we need that fire, dopey voicemail. So if you guys have the fire, dopey voicemail inside of you, please share it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Join Patreon. Maybe most importantly, go to iTunes. Leave a five-star dopey review. My dad might read it. My dad will be on after Dina. And now... Without further ado, the one and only Dina LaFonte. So I am joined by Mountainside staff. Sure. Sober coach, transformation tailor. My great-grandfather was a tailor. Oh, yeah? But not a transformational tailor. More of like a, you know, a garment so, a garment yeah, sewing, tailor. Sewing. Dina LaFonte. Mm-hmm. She is a transformation tailor, recovery coach, person in recovery, person with a fucked up story uh, with solution built in. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. So what does that even mean? Right. Tailored transformation. Tell me. So I could use a big tailored transformation. I will happily cut away all the debris and work with you if you want to do some work. Um, I need transformation. So what does that even mean, right? It could sound like a whole bunch of hoopla, but the reality is is sobriety and what we need to recover is really individual. And so depending on the type of person we're dealing with in relation and empathy and compassion, there has to be a part where we're identifying what's authentic and what needs to come to the surface so that that person can find comfort in their own skin. So one size fits all, great, we got AA, we got NA, we got Dharma, we got smart recovery, we got treatment centers, we got therapy. We have all these things, but sometimes the individual has tried pockets of things and it hasn't worked. Or the individual doesn't like the things that are standard to offer. And so we have to get a little creative, right? We have to think outside of the box. And I think that's really where I thrive the most is I've never really fit into the box or the caste system of what I should be doing, when I should be doing it, how I should be doing it. And that little part of like defiance is something that I bring into my everyday work, working with clients here is like, how do I navigate something that is detrimental to their livelihood that can become part of their identity that they feel comfortable to explore? Give me an example. How do you do it? What's the special sauce? Love. Love. And I, I know that sounds so cliche. No, love is the answer. Right. So I don't look at a person based on their social status or their asset wealth or their demographic or their physique. I look at a person and I see the person. I'm not impressed by how much money a person has. I'm not impressed by what they've accomplished, what they haven't accomplished. And so because that's not a driving force in when I sit with clients... The fact is that I want to love you. I want to get to know you. I want to see how I can help you. And if what was happening wasn't working, what can happen? Um, And I think that that 
right there is a pivotal point of transformation. They're used to people saying, do this, do that, or they're used to people giving or giving orders to others, right? I want this, I want that, I want this. So when you sit down and you co-create, you get to make something that never existed. And that becomes the identity in which they get to wear because they're building it brick by brick themselves. How do you love a client? How is love the answer with a client? You know, I think that I want to bring to the table with every human I interact with something I didn't feel I received when I was younger. And I know that everybody, if you are a human being with even the most basic fundamental ability to have a relationship, can feel genuine, authentic connection. And so when I have that at the forefront, I think that that naturally transcends or, or is received as love, right? So connection is the answer to addiction. Yeah. That's what they say. This is what they say. And you believe it. I'm living proof that it can work. That connection is the answer to treatment, to addiction. So connection, it, yes. I agree. Yeah. And it can be connection to anything. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing even with your podcast, right? It's a connection. Oh, the podcast saved my life, 100%. Well, but that's your connection. But when somebody turns it on and they hear something that they relate to, even if they don't know you personally or me personally, that right there shows that we're not alone. Right? We're not in this. We have the same similar feelings, even if it's not the same experience. Right. But how do you turn up the juice for the person who's really struggling out there? Like, how, what would you offer? Like, like if you had initial tips to somebody, like there's a dude that I'm, I'm friendly with in, in our communities called the Dopey Nation. There's, mm -hmm. there's a dude in the Dopey Nation who he's in and out, in and out, in and out. He has like nine days today. He like, he's so resistant to everything. Like, what do you tell him to do? So the question isn't about what I'm telling him to do. The question becomes about the people around him. Can they love him despite the fact that He's they alone, don't... He's alone, I think. Alone. Right. So, so usually it's because somebody giving an instruction or a suggestion gets frustrated that they're not willing to take it. Can I love him despite whether or not the fact that he may die while he's out there? Can I just show up if he calls? Can I offer to say, hi, how are you? I'm thinking of you and not try to fix it. If he wants to experience that, it's not something I necessarily would say I agree with. Of course, I don't want somebody to overdose and die. Are you saying you're going to work with him pro bono? Um, <laughs> he could call. We can see. Okay. I mean, I think... He's in New Orleans. That's okay. Listen, this is accessible to anybody, anywhere. And I think that staying alive and wanting the help is the first step. But the truth is that you can love somebody even if they don't want the help because it's not about us. But the reflexive thing that I always think isn't about how much I can love somebody. It's what are you willing to do? Like you want to get, like that's where my mind goes, which is much less friendly than yours. Yeah. Mine is what are you willing to do? Yeah. And so what I do here and in general in my life, I remember coming into AA and people telling me like, I don't get close to somebody before the fourth step, just step over the bodies and I remember thinking to myself how much that didn't sit with who I am as a person. And I remember finally when I found my own voice turning around when I heard that statement and being like, no, my job is to sit on the fucking floor with the person till they can step forward. When they can step forward, I'll step with them. But what if there's, there's nobody with this guy? So what do you tell him? Yeah, let's talk, right? Very, like, very do beautiful. you want, yeah, like, let's just talk. Like, what's going on? You know, do you want to be do you want to have conversation? Like, where, what, what's happening? How are you feeling? 
can I help you somehow? Right. And I'm not looking for them to get sober. I'm not looking for them to change everything. The hope is always that they're inspired to do that because I care. It's not because they have to do that for me to care. And that's where like the attraction comes in, like attraction to wellness or to change or to tailor your transformation. Sure. Exactly. It's, it's, what what I needed is not going to be what you need, what they need. What he, It's never going to look like that. It's right. going to be interpreted with where they're at and what they can foresee for themselves, right? And so even getting sober, think about how, I mean, for me, I was so broken. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Like I couldn't understand the concept of love. I, I, I didn't want anything to do with any part of this world, right? So... For me to think that if somebody gave me suggestions, which they had, that I'd be susceptible to take it because I was suffering. The truth is, is I learned how to live in suffering. I learned how to just manage enough to survive a day. And there was plenty of days where I'd wanted to die. So you could give me the roadmap, but if I don't believe I'm worthy to walk down it, what's the difference? Right. But, and you don't have a ticket to give somebody worthiness. All you can do is be like, I'm here. So there is no, there are no tips. You don't have any tips to give anybody. It's to try, I think your tips are to other people to show up for the really, really hurting people rather than telling the hurting people what to do. That's interesting. So what I'm getting is you're telling the other people to show up for the hurting people and maybe the hurting people to be open to the help. To receive love. love. Right. So it's like, hey, can you love this person no matter what, even if they may die? that you don't agree with what they're doing. Understandably so. It's dangerous. It's scary. You you want them to thrive. You want them to live. But can you just recognize that they're in pain and they're hurting? Because if you can do that, the other person then can come and feel safe enough to explore why it is that they're hurting. And there's so many resources, people who want to help, right? You have your podcast. There's that other we don't use alone. There's treatment centers. There's recovery coaches, clinicians, and whatnot. Billion twelve-step groups, a billion, billion. non-twelve-step groups. Exactly. Yeah, but it, but then for me, it comes down to that and very annoying question that probably saved my life, which is, what are you willing to do? You know, like what I, if the best they're willing to do is for right now, right? Because what we're willing to do will change in time, and sometimes the best that we're willing to do is answer a phone. Well, that's 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 the beginning then. Right. That's that's where. See, I I struggle with all of the cliches, but the cliches are cliches because they're real. And it's like you're talking about meeting people where they are and Mm -hmm. not forcing them to be where you want them to be. Right. Even though I really like forcing people to be. Of course. But I never, it never works. So I'm with you. And when's the first time you got high? Oh, well. Now you're like, uh oh. (laughs) Now it gets real. Okay. So, um, The first time I didn't get, it's, I was self-masochistic from an early age, right? So I was a cutter probably by like the age of eight. And then I was anorexic and bulimic um, with an eating disorder by before the age of 10. Um, And that was strictly due to my upbringing, right? My dad was a career criminal. What was his expertise in crime? We, I don't know. I don't know that you would say expertise, right? Because I was living in poverty. Um, petty, petty stuff. Petty larceny, stealing, and returning. It just—he was an addict. 
he was an addict. Um, yeah, he met my mom while he was in a halfway house. My mm -hmm. mom was an untreated addict. They had a one night stand and their best thinking was to get married and, and try to make it work. So when she, when, when they conceived you, were they not together? No, they met each other that night at a club and then there was a snowstorm. And so they spent the weekend together and I was conceived. And a magical weekend. A magical it, snowy it, I'm weekend. sure it was pretty magical if they remember it, right? So when did she go back to find him? Or were they just together after that? I mean, they were together for, I guess they were together. So it wasn't a one night stand. I mean, when they met and they conceived me, it was, I don't know if she. But they stayed together. Sure. I mean, it's very loose interpretation of together. Was it together because of the circumstances? Well, what I'm saying is, and don't, you know, yeah. go slowly here, please, with me. It's like, let's say they hooked up, right? And, and she got pregnant but they weren't ever together and they went on their separate ways. And then she gets, she's like, Oh my God, I'm pregnant. And she has to find him. But they like got together and stayed together until she found out she was pregnant. No. So I don't know that that was, we don't know. I, yeah. I don't know if the second one was the circumstance because a year before that, my mom had a fling with um, somebody in the religious community and gave my half sister up for adoption. Wow. So my mom was already kind of, out there doing, you know, self-destructive things for whatever her reasons were. And this was just catalytic of her previous choices leading up to this. So I don't think it was as beautiful as I'd like to believe the first part was that they stayed together. They did try to make it work. Um, but due to the fact that my dad was an absent father and not available to be the ideal of saving me from a undiagnosed bipolar mother who is also an addict, the chaos um, and the neglect, the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, and the mental abuse, I think started to come to the surface at around seven. I looked around and I was like, I'm not like other people. I don't have these dinners that they have. I don't have the attention they have. My mom's never at these functions. She doesn't really care. I'd come home and she'd be lamped out naked on the couch. You know, so what was your life like at seven? Were your parents together then? No, that Where was, was my life at seven. And like he was gone. He, yeah, he was out of the picture. What um, was he using? At one point, I mean, it was anything from like heroin to crack to pills. I mean, it was a revolving door. And I guess that's pretty much like my story too, right? Like at any given time, we could be addicted to anything we have available. And your mom? So my mom was more into like heroin and cocaine. And was a, a steady user of them? I mean, as steady as I remember finding the packets that she had in her draw. And, so. and, and what do you remember about the masochism as a kid? So the self-masochism, I think, came about and so that was my first addiction, right? Was the cutting and the suicidal ideation. And young. That's young. That's young, yeah. I mean, I wasn't brought up in a functional household. I'm not judging you. Oh, no, no, no. Totally. I, trust me. I, if anyone's going to... There's nothing you could judge about me that I haven't judged No, I, I'm, I'm not exactly <laughs> with you. Um, Our two show models are let your freak flag fly yeah. and love is the answer. So Great. You're you're totally safe. I'm on par. You're in a safe space. <laughs> so I know um, I'm dragging you through the wreckage of your, of, of, yeah. of your childhood. 
But you know what, though? I think it's important for me to always think about where I've come from to appreciate where I'm at. Sure. You know, and I've I've done a really good job of that. But um, in a very fuzzy sweater and a really bougie office. And you life am? is good. Thank you. Tra- tailored transformations. <laughs> it's all going well. So, uh, yeah. So the self-masochism came in at around seven, eight. Right. And I thought maybe if I looked like other younger girls or I was thinner or I was prettier or I was somehow more perfect than what I was created like, my mom might offer me love and attention And instead, it just wasn't working. So I just continued that cycle of like, I was silently screaming. That's what it felt like. I was silently screaming inside of myself, pay attention to me. I need you. I need a mom or I need need attention and and I need you to be there. But I didn't know how to say it at such a young age, right? Fundamentally, I didn't have the skill set. I didn't even know how to identify that. And so it just kind of started to come out as, these self-inflicted moments of like pain. And when you cut yourself, you know, that's not a good thing, but I understand why as a younger kid, we, we can take or gravitate towards it because it reminds us we're breathing and it's not a, the best way to go about it. But when, again, if you don't have the resources or the tools, you only know what you know. And the truth was probably by 10, I didn't actually care if I lived. You know, um, I've slipped my wrists. Like I've, I've tried to intentionally overdose multiple times and I would always wake up breathing. And, and I remember thinking like, I can't believe I have to do this again. Like, I don't want to do this. I hate my life. I hate my situation. And there was no getting out of it. Right. How? Um, really young. 10. Yeah. So like at that point I was probably about 10. Living on Long Island in New York. Living on Long Island in New York. And yeah, so then obviously like I had no rules. I was responsible for my brother because my mom was working at a bar um, if she came home or whatever. So I was responsible for him and hanging out with older kids. And um, at the end of the day, like (laughs) I sought out chaos. That's what I was comfortable with and where I was used to. And so I picked up my first drink at 10, but I only did it because I was at a party and I was probably the youngest person at the party and it was all older people and guys and I wanted them to accept me, right? Like I was seeking acceptance from anywhere at this point. Love. Love. I was searching and seeking somebody to love me um, and like me and give me that stamp of approval that I was okay and I was worthy. And they were like, they put a bottle of Jack Daniels in front of me. They're like, okay, let's, let's drink. And I was like, yeah, okay. And like, you know, I think a performance always comes into play when we're afraid, right? The first thing we do is defer to like being stronger, tougher, or more confident than we really are. And so I was like, great. And so we started to go shot for shot and I had alcohol poisoning definitely within an hour and they left me to vomit behind a chair. A friend's mom came and got me because the girl stumbled in and realized I was really sick. And that was the first time I drank alcohol, touched alcohol. And uh, I was back at it within a day. I was like, okay, this is what older people do. This is what they, how they hang out. And I'm just going to get better at it. Well, how old were the other people hanging out, you think? Oh, anywhere from like 17 to like 20 something. Isn't it bizarre that they want to drink with a 10-year-old though? 
Yeah, I think it was more of like a get the hell out of here drink. Right. But I was more like, I need somebody to How be around. How were you even there, you think? I guess, I don't know. Who brought you to this party, of this I went team with a party? Few, so I, w- I went with a few girlfriends, maybe two or three. And you were the youngest, probably. Uh, yeah, I was always the youngest. That's crazy. Yeah. And then from there was drinking just like the thing? So drinking was a thing. We used to do like the, hey, mister, can you get us booze? Can you get us beer at a handy pantry or 7-Eleven? And then it was like drinking in the alley, drinking beyond the, you know, the baseball field, whatever, wherever it was, right? And then also I started to realize my mom's never home. So like I could just do whatever I want at the convenience of my own home. And then about... I'd say 11, 12, I started smoking weed. And then at about 13, I started to do, ecstasy was really big. I'm an 80s baby. Um, It was really big back then. And so I started to explore that around like 14 and I did it every weekend all the time. Um, and then Were you it, going to like parties and stuff? Oh, yeah. Like raves and yeah. stuff? Yeah. And then w- through the rave scene, I started to learn about candy flipping so I started doing that, went into several K-holes. Several. Isn't candy flipping e- ecstasy and acid, right? Or is it so, ecstasy and coke? So I used to do it with ketamine and, and ecstasy. That's candy flipping too? So I guess like anything is candy. Like, with ecstasy. Unless you're speedballing. That's not candy flipping, but yeah. Okay. So and did you candy flip with acid, coke, and ketamine? Separately? So. What's the best candy flip? What was your favorite? honestly, I think I would just get to a point where I would take anything available. So it's like I've done acid in one sitting. That was a little long. I've done acid, cocaine, ecstasy, weed. And then when I was bored, I would pop in a few pills. So it would be like Xanax wasn't really big when I was younger. It got bigger as I got older. That's a whole nother story. I loved mind erasers. I don't know if you know what that is, but. What? Tell me. So you take a bunch of Xanax and then you drink booze on it and you can't recall anything. I feel like Xanax alone does that. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I had an experience with with one Halloween. I was selling ecstasy mm. and I went to some, and, and, I, and I, I think I had Coke. I was addicted to heroin, but I had Coke on me also. And I went to a party and I sold a bunch of ecstasy and I went home with this woman and we wound up taking ecstasy and and I did coke and heroin and I fell in love with her that night. Yeah. But then I never saw her again. Makes sense. But it was like, it was- I, It was real. I never would have called it candy flipping though because I thought it has to be ecstasy and acid. I don't know. I mean, I think at one point or- I, Maybe I'm not an aficionado of the terminology. Aficionado. Oh, there you go, right? So You're not for... an aficionado of saying aficionado. <laughs> so I feel like back then we called it candy flipping if it changed. Okay. Well, it's a good it's a good it's a good name. Yeah. Um and then also uh Angel Dust was really big when I was younger. See, I never got to do it. All right. It's not it's not a regret. Did okay. you it, well it's similar it's like DMT. I did longer. D- I did DMT, but I didn't do it. But it's like longer. So your your teen years were pretty out there. Yeah. So my teen years were nuts. My mom uh, never wanted kids. Basically, had told me that in a variety of different ways. She was really abusive. My brother locked her in a closet one time so I could run out of the house, and then she officially threw all my stuff on the lawn at th- thirteen. 
So where did you go? So that's pretty scary, right? Like being 13 and homeless and not horrible. Yeah. And you're knowing that like your mom uh, doesn't really care if you're dead or alive. So I slept at some friends' houses. You know, I was always kind of known as like, just let her sleep another night here. Her mom, dot, dot, dot. Right? I was already known in my friend circle as like the poor kid. You know, the kid who had absentee parents. And so I, I crashed. Nobody ever asked me explicitly if, if, if like I was homeless but or, or I needed a place to live. It was just kind of like, can I sleep by so-and-so? For like, how long? So I'd sleep like for a few nights here, a few nights there, a few nights there. And I'd kind of cycle through my friends over repeatedly. And then one of my childhood good friends. Um, in At the, 13. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. So I never got comfortable to a residence. I never like comfort and stability were not part of my childhood. Um, and it still took a really long time for me to get into a place where I could familiarize myself with feeling settled in any place for too long because I always felt like it was just, you know, going to slip away or get taken away or I was going to be unwanted. So at a certain point, my childhood friend had spoken to her, her mom and parents and were like, yo, you, you got to live here. Like you got to finish school, you know, because I did go to school, but I didn't go to school. I didn't really care. And then she's like, you could stay here. Like, just stay here for a bit and let's let's figure this out. And so I stayed there for a bit. And then we lost, I was dating a guy from a different town and there was a car accident and a bunch of people were in the car with a drunk driver that was a, also a friend in the friend group. And uh, that was like, super traumatic like I met them at the hospital we were supposed to be with her as well and it just so happened that like our lives were spared nothing happened to us but you know I watched that family fall apart and I remember being on the I didn't go to school at that time so I was probably like what 15 and I wasn't really going to school instead I was going to this town and my mom had shown up at the house and I remember saying to me like where are you living what are you doing? Like, how come you're not dead? Your and mother like, said that? Yeah. She like looked me dead in the face. She's like, I'm so surprised you weren't in that car and not dead. And I like looked at her and I was just like, what? Like, Did you stay at your friends after that? So I continued to stay at my friends. And you didn't fail out of school? Well, I didn't. I was failing out of school and things were getting worse, progressively worse. Cause I wasn't, even though I was in school, I wasn't attending school. I was cutting all the time to do drugs and smoke weed and just do nothing. Right. I was loitering at school pretty much. I was going in on ecstasy. I was going in on weed. I was going in on anything I could get my hands on if I was going in at all. And then an ex-boyfriend had said to me like, you need to move. You need to like go live with your grandmother or get out of here. Like you're going to end up dead. You know, and at that point I was 16. So I was coming into what, 11th grade, I think. Yeah, I was like sniffing 11th grade at the age of 16 and... Sniffing what? Everything. Anything. There was nothing I didn't try to ingest that was available. And I had I had uh, taken a lot of drugs at a party I and I ended up... And I was raped, Right. And I don't actually consider it rape because like I don't actually remember except waking up naked and 
in a room full of boxes and seeing a condom and being like, okay, well, at least the person used a condom. So you don't think of it as being raped or you do? Now I do. But at the time, I felt like it was self-imposed. I placed myself in that predicament. I took so much drugs that night. When you when at that point were you just like I just I must have hooked up with somebody instead of I was totally raped. Yeah. So I was like, okay, like we say there was a condom, right? right? And that but I was in a relationship and the boyfriend eventually the boyfriend had kept asking me if I wanted to do Molly at well ecstasy and all these other things and I would kept like for like about a month I was like no, 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 no. And he's like, why don't you want to get fucked up? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I just don't, I'm good. Because of that night. Yeah, like I scared myself. Like I went to an extreme extent and uh, I took anything in front of me. There was nothing I didn't ingest. And like, again, I was like 16 and like. Except in that moment. What do you mean? Except post-rape. Or were you still using? No, even that night that I was raped, I that was a direct result of me not knowing. Sure. But I'm saying right after that, your boyfriend's like, let's yeah, roll, yeah. let's do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's roll, that. let's get fucked up, let's drop acid. And I was like, for a few weeks, I kept like putting it off and coming up with excuses because I got scared. Were you drinking in that period? Was there, was, yeah. there was no glimmer of like, maybe I should stop fucking no. using? Okay. No, it was just like, I'm, I'm good right now because I didn't know how to tell him. Right. And I was afraid if I rolled, we have these like, Pseudo love affairs that you were just talking about. You fall so deep in love. Right. And I was like, it's going to come out that right. I'm a whore. Like, I just just slept with somebody like one night randomly. Um, and so finally I said yes. And we got really fucked up. It was New Year's Eve. He's like, let's tell each other all of our oh secrets. And I was like, I don't want to play that game. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. I was like, last month when I was at that party and you were trying to find me and I wouldn't answer my phone. Yeah, like I I slept with some dude. And That's not the romantic secret he wanted to hear. I know. I had no romantic secret for him other than like. I betrayed you. Yeah, like, and, and, and that's I'm the an thing. Addict. Yeah, and, and anyway, long story sh- shorter than what it is, he ended up hitting me over it. Oh, my God. And so, like, it was just, like, this catalytic, right? So now I see the love that I grew up with that's volatile come into play in my personal intimate relationships. And so it feels familiar. And I'm like, oh, he cares. Right. Because he was abusive to you. So then the abuse started to happen. And you stayed with him. So I stayed with him. But one thing he did say is you need to move. You need to get out of here. And I was like... If I get out of here, what's going to happen? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, just leave and like, we'll figure it out. So I left and I moved in with my grandmother eventually. But he needed you to leave your friends? He wanted me to leave the area. And, and, you, he and said, you said, okay. Well, he, I, at that point, I wasn't any longer living with the friend. I was living with him and his family. Oh. And he's like, this isn't sustainable. Like, you need to be with family or something. And... uh so I called up my grandmother at the time who owned a house in Nassau. And I was like, can I come live there and finish high school? Your mom's mom. Dad's mom. Where was he at? I don't know. Like maybe the Bronx. <laughs> so at that point, he was having my brother sell pens for the blind for a donation. Yeah, it's a good. It was a con, right? A like a scam. little scam. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, he was, he was like pretty heavy into crack and him and my uncle, my mother's twin brother used to use all the time together. So yeah, my dad wasn't in the picture still with me. But your grandma took you in. My grandmother said, yeah. So I went. Was she loving to you? Yeah. She's like an Italian grandma. That's nice. Yeah. She's an Italian grandma, likes to like watch her soap opera. She's passed now, but. Did you feel at home there? No. No. It wasn't my home. No. Um, and then my aunt and uncle bought it over from my grandmother. And um, as much as they tried to make, help me make it feel like a home, I knew that it was just like a stepping stone to like to you get out. Life. Yeah. Right. And so my next move I had calculated, I still continued to use. I used to love to do ketamine and go for runs. Nice. Yeah. Were you a big runner? No. Just running on ketamine. It was just like, Yeah. That's cool. Isn't that wild? It is. Yeah. So I used to just bang rails and go for a run. And Where would you get the ketamine from? Drug dealers. It's funny. Like nobody had ketamine when I was using. It was not a thing. I mean, really? some, after, I mean, I guess my drug dealers basically just had heroin, but. So I think that's what happened because there's always waves of one specific drug, right? Like right now we're in the fentanyl epidemic and right. But before that it was heroin. And before that, I think it was like ecstasy before that it was acid before that it was crystal uh angel dust before that it was you know like it always rotates something becomes the the, the preeminent the, substance yeah but like how would they like they sell ketamine and like what what do the bags of ketamine look like like i never bought a bag of ketamine like is it just like they're is it what does it look like it's like clear you could get it like you know like the the end of a Ziploc, like uh, right. a sandwich bag, not a Ziploc. Uh -huh. So it's like really like thin. So it like looks like a balloon, like a little. Okay, like a little wrapped up. Like, yeah, bag. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I you did, just break it up. And I did ketamine off a dude's hand once and then my, my heroin was replaced with ketamine, but I never bought ketamine. So okay. I, was it cheap? You're like, I don't trust you now that you've never. I know. I was like, like wow, well, you're guy? suspect. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, no, was it cheap? Sure. If you're a female and like you want drugs, it can be cheap. It can be very cheap. It can be free. You know, like it really depends. So you would snort ketamine and go running. And that was the only running you did at the time. That was the only running I did. Like if I was doing exercise, I was like, I have to do it with drugs. I loved uppers though. Like any type of amphetamine, cocaine, Adderall, anything like that was like that fed my eating disorder and kept my skinny, drug addiction. Kept you skinny, active, and, and, it, and happy. Yeah, until I ended up in a psych ward. But yeah, it did. So how, how did high school go? So I graduated barely. It was still like a pretty big drug fest. I like went to a bunch of fish shows and I just barely made it through you know my aunt and uncle really pushed for it were you like a hippie or were you like like a weird rave drug girl kind of thing a little bit of everything yeah. like I I again like I never really fit into that box right like I I could go into anything I became a chameleon is the truth right I was very adaptable because that was the only way I knew how to survive so the way that I survived was like if I want to be a rave person I can just walk into that arena. If I want to be a hippie, I can walk into that arena. Everything works if you know how to blend. And all you were really interested in was getting high and being accepted. Mm -hmm. So that like, was like my so, primary so like, goals. If they played like split open in melt or it was whatever, you didn't really care about the actual subculture as much as you felt 
Like I was around people. You were around people. You were accepted and you were high. Exactly. Well, that makes sense. Right? I'm with, I'm with you. Yeah. So that was, yeah. So that was that aspect. And then finally I was like, things weren't going great with my aunt and uncle. They weren't going terrible, but I was also like, I got to get out of here. I need a stable roof. And I knew that the only way to do that was if I got into a college and they were great. Like they tried to say like, go local, we'll help you. But I was like, I'm going away. Like I couldn't be in a place for too long because I had already gotten used to being Nomadic. displaced. Right. Yeah, I was exactly. So You're I was a like gypsy drug addict. So yeah. where did you go? So I ended up in Rhode Island. Rhode Island. You went to RISD or something? No. Do you think I qualified I to get into RISD? I wish. Johnson and Wales, because they accepted me despite like a plummeting score and like, you know, transcript. So no matter how fucked up you were, you were good enough to get into school. And, no, and I was good. At, no, I was good enough to survive and to apply. You applied. No, I barely school. applied. I don't even think they required an essay. Like it wasn't. How did you wind up there of all places? Because you wanted to leave New York. I just, I really believed like I needed to go somewhere. No roof I ever experienced felt like my own roof. Like I never felt safe in the space that I was in. And I thought to myself, if I got to college and I became a businesswoman, nobody could fuck with you. Yeah. Like I, this is back when like they had car phones. Do you remember them? Like the big ones. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I want a car phone. I want a briefcase. I can't even. What kind of business did you want to do? Well, here's the fucked up part. So it must run in my genes. But by 21, I did open up a business. Multi-level marketing. Yeah, it was a little pyramid schemey, but it worked. Were you like selling Amway products and stuff? No, I was selling. <laughs> I was having people sell. Sell what? So I made an override off of people. I had like $250,000 at one point worth of consignment goods in a warehouse. And they were what selling kind of goods? things like Disney, Panasonic, all discounted clearance. And they would go business to business. How did you get into that? <sighs> the tangle web we weave. So when I got to Rhode Island, I was like, I'm going to do great in college and I'm going to join a sorority. But like the second day I was there, I didn't know anyone. And so I started drinking. And so I met some girls that were cool, drinking like me, doing coke like me, getting fucked up like me, partying like me. And they became my friends. Lo and behold, they were in a sorority. And I was like, I'm going to do this. It'll keep my grades up. And within like the first trimester, I think I was on academic probation. I was just a mess, like wholeheartedly a mess with no form of navigational tools whatsoever. Talk about one night. So this is where mind racers came in, by the way. This is where I learned if you partner Xanax with alcohol, alcohol, you literally can just erase the entire experience. And I used to actually, and this is the dangerous self-masochistic part that existed in me. I would look forward to it. Well, I mean, there's a relief. I I think it was a similar mind erasing to, to combine Xanax with heroin. I think that was was pretty mind erasing. I have years just gone. Yeah. Years and years. Yeah. And, but I didn't want to lose them. I just didn't want to be around. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to, I didn't, wasn't craving the eraser as much as I didn't want to deal with my present. Did you, did you cut through the whole time or was the cutting just when you were little? No, it still stayed with me, just like the eating disorder. Where were you cutting? Those at that two, point? 
Those two, like inner thigh or arm or, yeah. And it kept going. It wasn't as frequently, just on an occasion. Because like, you had alcohol and drugs. I don't know if that's why. Probably, I, I, right? No, I think it's like, it, it's a form of, of an addiction in itself. Like, though, so No, this, what I mean is you cut less because you, when you were oh, seven, yeah, 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 yeah. you couldn't drink. Well, and also now I had guys, so I was right. addicted to sex. Like, right. I had all these other avenues in which I was feeding this to get out of your toxicity right. in me. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, who cares? Like, but there was times where it would resurface. The eating disorder lasted the entire time. That was my longest addiction. What does that look like? I mean, there was a point where I was hospitalized. Because um, you wouldn't eat? Well, I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to eat. I, I wanted to be heroin chic. And I definitely accomplished that at like, I think I was like 92 pounds at one point. Right. And I still thought I looked fat. Right. You know, like this idea, this self-image that I had of me, it started when I was a young girl and it just continued. Like nothing I ever did was ever going to be pretty enough, good enough, hot enough, accepting. And so I just thought that if I continued to, you know, feed this idea that I don't want to eat, I would eventually come to this appearance, this You'd be ideal. you the place you wanted to get to. This ideal appearance. No, I was never getting there. And I was hospitalized before it got any worse. I, that didn't change it. I was hospitalized and I just kind of bullshitted my way out of it to be like, no, I was just, I was exhausted. No, I was just really tired. Well, considering all the ketamine and running you were doing. And right. Yeah. Oh, so, well, no, at that point, though, when I got to college, it was cocaine. It was cocaine and Adderall. It was a lot of still Molly, well, ecstasy back then and uh, ketamine on occasion, but nothing like it was when I was in high school because I went through periods. I hear you. Yeah. Periods and, of like. And so how did uh, Johnson and Wales do you in general? Yeah, no. So within the first year, they were like, you can't come back. So you left. And when did you stay out well, there? Well, so I had an apartment with a friend that was in the sorority and I couldn't pay my rent. And I was like, I need to work. And so there was an ad and they were like, you know, marketing, whatever, whatever. So I went in and I looked around. And I was like, this, and I, I'm used to cons because my family, right? And I was like, okay. I was like, I get what's going on here. So this top guy makes money off of all these other guys. And you just keep working your way up the ranks. And so I was like, okay, I got to get into a different kind of position where I'm making money off of other people. And yeah, I did. How did you start that whole thing? Yeah, so I started going business to business like everyone else and then gradually built a team within the office and then went to the guy and was like, okay, like you need to incorporate me now because I have this amount of people producing this and much and I want to make an override. So what was the dream? The dream was to be wealthy. The dream was to be like a boss with the car phone. Like, where did that come from? I think it came from the dream that I was going to be able to go back to my mom on her deathbed and say like, fuck you. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. And not because of you, yep. but because of me. Yeah. In fact, in spite of you, I did <laughs> That was, I romanticized that for decades. No, I can relate to that. Yeah. As, as, as distant my story is from yours, I can totally relate to that. I wanted to be able to say. Yeah, you want to tell everybody that. Cause, cause, because maybe we didn't believe in ourselves, so we assumed that nobody did. So fuck them when we actually make it. I wanted to be the underdog story. Right. 
Right. And you were though. I mean, you had you were a real Dickensian fucking, you know. I was the mutt that shit. no one wanted. Yeah. Serious artful dodger shit. <laughs> so what I mean, the business sounds terrible. It now. was horrible. Um so and I was also in that? an abusive relationship. My brother's heroin use got really bad at that point too. So I was like getting the shit beat out of me. By your boyfriend. By the boyfriend at the time. And we were still drinking. And we were probably drinking every day. Like, it was just crazy. It was like three of us in like a one bedroom. It was my apartment. But like him, he came down from Philadelphia and stayed with me. And then two of his guys came as well. And like The boyfriend they, or the brother? My ex-boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. Then like he started, because he worked for the company as well. He started sleeping with one of my employees. But it was just mayhem. You know, and so my brother, my brother got really bad with heroin and overdose at that time, like twice, I think. Yeah. 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 He, and let me tell you, like, yeah, he definitely should have been dead a few times. But so he had overdosed, I think, for the second time and he drove up or he came up to see me and he was like, yo, you, you gotta go. Like, you gotta leave here. Like, you're gonna end up dead. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's go. And like I packed up my shit and I just brought it back to New York and I got an apartment because I had a little bit of cash. I got an apartment with another girl that I knew from my childhood who unbeknownst to me at the time, but definitely worked out in my favor, was a big cokehead. So there was just cocaine all the time. And that went on for like a good half a year. And then finally I was like, this is nuts. You know, like this is was getting crazy. City? No, it was on Long Island, uh, Glen Cove. And then a different childhood friend was like, I got to leave my dude. Let's get an apartment. So we got an apartment in Babylon. I start working on Wall Street. I'm a, I am was a very good liar when I was younger. I'm sure you probably could still pull it off. I, I can. I can if I need to. Only for emergencies. I had met my uh, sister at that time, my half-sister. She had found my mom. They had a relationship. And then the I, woman, the, the woman that you're, the baby that your mother had when she a year before me. Yeah. 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 Did she look yeah. like you? She looks like my mom, but not, do you look like your mom? I don't think so. Okay. No. So I, you don't look like your sister, your half sister. I don't think so. I think my brother and my half sister look like, okay. So she was also religious. She, when she was given up, she was given to a religious family. She, uh, <laughs> She was married at the time. So I was like, when I first met her, like 23, probably, it was right before I moved back here. And I remember meeting her and being like, what the fuck is going on? She was like calling my mom, mom. She was calling my aunt, aunt. She was like. She looked too familiar for you. Dude, I was like, am I having an outer body experience? I didn't even get fucked up yet. I definitely got fucked up after. So we, we don't speak until I move back to New York and I invite her over to my beautiful apartment and we sit down and I just like looked at her and she was like looking at me and I'm like, where did you come from? You know, like, why are you here? Like, you should run, you know? She's like, yeah. You had it better without us. That's right. And so she's like, yeah, she's like, she's like, I, uh, I don't want you to think that I'm like coming in here thinking I missed out on something. I can see you had a really hard like upbringing. And I was like, what upbringing? There was no upbringing. Like there was hard. I was like, we had nothing. Like we didn't even have present parents. I was like, the fact that you're choosing to like come into this is wild to me. 
And she's like, no, she's like, I, you know, she has, I have an autistic nephew. And so she wanted to locate my mom to see if something transpired on our side so she could better help her son, her son, you know, and nothing better happened, right? No, my mom didn't tell her the dad was, it was just like a shit show. And so, you know, my sister and I have had over the years, we have a good relationship now, but it was more of like a, why are you here? Like you have a better life without this chaos. Not to mention that you were in total active addiction and like what the fuck well, yeah. could you do for her anyway? Right. And it's like more like what could she do for you? And since she couldn't do anything, you were like, why are you here? Well, she also didn't, right? Like I was never going to tell her about these demons. I was never going to tell. She eventually caught on because we ended up working on Wall Street together. With your sister? Yeah. So she worked at a Jewish company and then there was a marketing opportunity and a, to spearhead this product line. And so I came in. And so she saw how bad I would get. In fact, to the extent of which I was sleep, I was sleeping with one of the directors of one of the divisions who was a big addict, very wealthy guy, huge mental issues and addiction at the time. What kind of mental issues? I mean, he had way too much money at the type of age that we were that his idea of himself was so inflated. Right, like Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing. Sure, right. Some lesser degree of Wall Street. Right, like his... Yeah, and so it was a very Are there any dwarves or any weird things like that. No, I mean he was like no. I mean he had some fetishes, but like, yeah. Can you think of any horrible stories from that time that you'd like to share, perhaps? So this was right about. So I had been working at the Jewish company for a while, well, not a while, but I really needed to get out of the toxic relationship, the dynamic that I was in with my boss. Um, because he was in full control of everything. He could control my whereabouts. He could control my paycheck. And this is this dude that you were sleeping with? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And you get high with him? Very high. Oh, yeah. So I um, I met somebody else, a, a co-worker's brother. It, the Jewish community is very small. I don't know if you know this, but very small Orthodox community. And so he came to happy hour, the brother, and asked me out on a date for like a month. Finally, I wanted to stick it to the dude that I was sleeping with. And I was like, fuck you, I'm going on this date. And so he was big into Oxy and, and Roxy's and all the blue like pills and shit. So we went and like we went to a show and we started getting fucked up together. And uh, he was big into traveling. He was a functioning addict, so to say. Until he wasn't, because then it turned into heroin. But by that point, we were married. Wow. We got, I married into an Orthodox family. Did you convert? I covered my hair. I wore the long skirt. Did you get in the mikvah or no? Oh, yeah. You converted for real? Well, my mother was Jewish. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, my mother was from a Jewish Orthodox family. So turned, you were Jewish? Sure. You but counted? I, yeah, I counted. In their, in their eyes, I was, I was a Jew. La Fonte is not a very Jewish name, though. No. Dina is, though. Dina's from the Torah. La so, Fontaine. So my mother was Jewish. My father was Catholic. Right. Neither of them were religious or observant. Right, right, right. My grandparents on both sides How were. How quickly did you marry the guy? Probably within like seven months. Were you still fucking the other guy? No. Okay. But that guy did pay for my engagement party to this guy. Right. It's quite a, quite a web. And you're taking Oxys, Roxys, Coke, whatever. Sure. We used to go to Burning Man parties, a were lot of you, them. Were you like a daily user? 
So when I was dating the boss, yes. When I was with this guy. He was the brother-in-law? No, he was just a brother. He was the boss's brother. No, a brother of somebody else. Not related to the boss. Not related Some to the boss. Some other orthodox brother. Some other orthodox, yeah. Which is very exactly. rarely described as orthodox brother. But anyway, so you marry the fucking orthodox brother guy. You take less drugs with him. But, well, not that it was less drugs. It was still pretty much daily. It would just turned into pills. Did you love him? <sighs> yes, you did. So... I loved that he accepted me for exactly the way I was without trying to judge me or change me. And I love that he loved me. But I don't think that I ever was capable of... Um, Loving anybody. Yeah. You were too fucked up. Yeah. Sad. Well, the opening of this whole thing is that your answer for everything is that you can love them Yeah. Now. So we're going to get... This was a sad time we're on, but... Well, then we had a baby. I And then we... It got into domestic violence, and then we got divorced. The orthodox brother, or you beat him up? No, I, no. I wish I did beat him up at the time, but no. The pills turned into heroin's obviously a lot cheaper, so it turned into heroin. And uh, when we got engaged that same weekend, I got pregnant, and so we sped up the wedding so that I wasn't married out of wedlock, and my son was similar to your parents. History repeating itself exactly. And so we sped it up and hid it from his dad, who's very religious. And we had our son and the heroin got out of control and he was just all the time nodding out and passing out here, passing out there. Then my brother got out of jail and I let him come stay in our apartment and then they started using together. Of course they did. Yeah. And so I was there with you like have the baby. a newborn. Are you using at that point? Not re not so much because I was breastfeeding and like terrified. Probably I was just like you don't want to fuck it up. Yeah, but I was taking Vicodins and Percocets and like once in a while I'd like split up a Roxy or whatever. I started smoking weed again and then yeah, and then when he then he started to like get pissed off about whatever he was getting pissed off about because we all know how like the come down is. And then he started to get like pretty violent, and then him and my brother were getting violent and. I had to get a restraining order. It was a whole shit show. And finally, I was like, I was like, I got to leave. Like, I, I need to take my kid and go. Like, I can't do this. This is my childhood all over again. And I was like, fuck, if I leave, I'm leaving with nothing. Like, the community is not going to help me. I don't have a career right now. Like, this guy has it all. And uh, I remember he, I told him he had said to me, he went to rehab, came back, relapsed like a month later. But he had said to me, I think we should have another kid or you should go back to work. And I remember my son being like eight months old, you know, and like looking at my kid, looking at the situation and being like, no, I got to go. And he's like, where are you going? And I was like, no, I got to leave. And he's like, leave to go where? And I was like, no, I got to get the fuck out of this marriage. Like, I can't do this. And he's like, what are you talking about? We're not getting divorced. And I was like, we are definitely getting divorced. Like, I'm not having another baby with you. He's like, all right. But we don't have to get divorced because you don't want to have another kid. And I was like looking around me and I was like, how the fuck did I get into this holy, like this mess again? Like, how does that happen? And and I was just like, no, I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. He's like, if you walk out the door, I'm throwing out all of your shit. And he had just come back from treatment. Yeah, a little while after. But you were like, there's no way this could work. Why were you so sure that it couldn't work? 
because I remember just looking around me and seeing history repeat itself. And like my traumatic response to it was like, run. And you weren't in a place where you could do anything else anyway. No, I didn't even like being a mom. I was dealing with postpartum. I was dealing with body dysmorphia issues. I was, I was like, I have to keep this kid alive and stay alive. Did you take the baby? Yeah. So I took the baby. Um, I asked my aunt and uncle if I could go there until I figured out my shit. And he did. He threw out all of my stuff. He, when I asked him for, like, he told the whole, the whole community turned their back on me. Well, that's what happened. Because you, you left the Orthodox community. Did he get the get? Did you get the get? So the get was like the most traumatizing part of it all. Like I tried to block it out because I was so traumatized. I went, we went to get the get and I had- Explain to the Dopey Nation what the get is. So there's um, a civil divorce, American divorce, cultural divorce, whatever. As far as you go to the courthouse, you file for divorce and you move on. In the Jewish law, though, there is a Jewish- Yeah, the religious law is you need a rabbi- to pronounce you divorced and the way that they do it is you show up at this this place that of their choosing and you meet with your soon-to-be ex-spouse and you recite in Hebrew all of these if you're a female these self-deprecating statements that this never existed in the eyes of God it never existed at all it's um such a weird practice it basically it's a very demoralizing practice for a woman what does the guy have to say the guy is just there, basically, and and signs the paperwork, right? He just like agrees to let you go on your and live your and life. And the woman says, "I, I, what? I renounce that this happened." She, yeah. So basically, it's a, it's a form of gaslighting. Like I felt gaslit. Like I have to say something I don't believe in. Like this did happen. Like this marriage happened. This catastrophe happened. But they're telling you to say that this never happened. It's not recognized in the eyes of God. It's not vo- like it's not. It's not. It didn't happen. Like an annulment, but way more grotesque, right? And the way that it's framed is it's the female's fault, and because I didn't keep the peace in the home, I didn't perform my duties well enough. I didn't do these things that were required in order to sustain the marriage. I don't know what to tell anyone. It was heroin. It was drugs. It was all the wrong parts of. But if a marriage fails, the old world custom is to blame the woman. Oh, yeah. Because he he was willing to just go on with it anyway. Yeah. So you do it. My my mom had to get a get I, to get divorced from her first husband. Yeah. And I don't I didn't retain any of the information from the story, except that it was traumatic also. Yeah. So you leave. The community and the marriage, and I left with nothing. And Family wouldn't have, help me with anything. And what about like his relationship to the son? So I remember as a kid, my mom trying to get my dad locked up and telling me all these horrific things about my dad and, and the exact experience of that, I shielded, wanted to shield my son from. So I didn't say those things when his dad wasn't giving me child support, when his dad was out doing drugs when his dad was not present for the first five years or the grandparents were sending, you know, doing whatever they were doing and not including my son. Like I never, I never shit on him. I never said anything mean, even though I held it inside and my friends watched me struggle. Like I was selling clothes. I was selling myself at one point. I was a sugar baby. Like I was doing anything in order to provide for my son. And so my friends would sit there and be like, 
when he asked for his dad, why do you, why do you make him sound like he's a good guy? And I'm like, because I don't want my son to ever experience the struggle I had to emotionally and mentally come to terms with and then heal in order to be alive and thriving. Like, I don't have to do that. My son will realize one day when he's old enough. And how is the son's relationship with the dude? It's great. And how did, and did you ever deal? I mean, like this, I feel like I came here and you were like, yeah, I'll do your podcast and I've taken you to hell. (laughs) It's like, yeah, but that's the thing is like, I think all of us come from hell and this is what it is. Like we show that like you can go through hell. Our heart can endure. We have the ability to heal it. It's okay. Those circumstances were not my choice. It was a series of circumstances I was experiencing, but that's not the sum of my experiences. So those early years at your aunt and uncle, what was your addiction like? It was nothing. So my addiction got really bad. I ended up in a psych ward after the divorce. But the younger years no, I meant after the divorce when you went back to that. Oh. When you went, didn't you go back to oh, their yeah, house with the, with the yeah, baby? Yeah, yeah, So he went to, he stayed in the apartment. I, I left with my son and went back to Nassau. And we were in like a one, like the same bedroom. It was just crazy. And my son was like one turning two. My life, I had ruined it, right? Like at that point, I was like, wow nobody's gonna want me like I am a single mom I am divorced I am a shit show and that just caused me to hang out with childhood friends and start doing an obscene amount of drugs from you know I had my aunt and uncle who would watch my kid and I would go and do nights oh you know all-nighters of cocaine and how old were you at that point at that point, I was like probably 26, 27. Right. And you were just totally reverting back to your teenage years. Yeah. And then your aunt and uncle had your baby, which I'm sure they were thrilled about. But they probably loved your son. They loved my son, for sure. Um, and they kind of became your de facto parents in a weird way. Yeah, de facto, sure. And they're, and and your son's de facto parents in those moments. In those moments. My son doesn't remember those moments. Thank God. Thank no, God. I had a similar thing with, with my daughter and my wife's parents that in the first couple of years, like I was too fucked up to be with them, to be with her or either of them. And they, and she wouldn't be with me. And she had moved in with her parents and her parents played a huge role in raising our daughter in the beginning. But that became too horrible for my daughter's mother, my wife, right. my partner, everyone call her. And she wound up having to leave because she couldn't handle that feeling. And I'm sure like having your aunt and uncle take care of your son is like terrifying. For me, I didn't notice it as terrifying. I was just like, I can't do anything different. This is going to be my life. Like no matter what way I turn, it's going to be broken and it's going to be shit. How do you wind up in the psych ward? So at that point, even with the partying, um, I went to a doctor, um, a quack, and I was like, I feel like I can't focus. And he's like, cool, you want Adderall? And I was like, yeah, I do. Thanks. I could use more focus. What happened to the warehouse full of goods? Oh, that was like long gone. I closed down the business. I was like, this is fucking, I'm out of here. And obviously you were out of that big firm because it was this family you married into. So you, what were you doing for work? 
So at that point, I was just doing like odd things. Like I was working for a friend's father or I was working at a, for like billing, like nothing stable, nothing career oriented. I was just trying to figure out how the fuck am I going to be a mom, be high, deal with my own shit, deal with the living. I couldn't not be high because I couldn't deal with a living in a one bedroom after being out on my own for however many years. I couldn't deal with that. So I had to be high in order to succumb to that reality. I also couldn't be sober because I couldn't deal with the pain of looking at all the parts that was happening. And I had to work in order to provide for my kid because the, my ex-husband wasn't. So it was like I just felt like no matter what, the walls were always going to be closing in. And so I needed Adderall um, mixed in with everything else in order for me to be able to cope and focus. And sounded like a great story. Have energy. Yeah. I needed to organize my socks and like books in like chronological height order. Sure. I did a lot of amazing non-related things on Adderall. Like so much so that I really between not sleeping and not eating and doing excess copious amounts of Adderall and cocaine and whatever else was available. I had figured out the world. I don't know if anyone else can relate to the psychosis that can happen from methamphetamines, extreme amounts and like long periods of no sleep. But yeah, like I, it got to a point where I definitely, something inside of my brain broke. I uh, thought that, I mean, yes, we are all dying. Yes, there is definitely radiation poisoning all over the place. But to the extreme extent of which I was bathing in Coca-Cola because I had figured out the the way to eradicate the radiation in my body was through Coca-Cola. How would you fill a tub with Coca-Cola? Like you, you just buy get two liters? Yeah, you just keep getting two liter bottles. Would it be the real Coke or like the... No, you need Coca-Cola, like gasoline power. It has to yeah. be the real stuff. Yeah, there's no diet, nothing like that. It has do you to be remember, Do you remember like what you were thinking to think that that was the answer? Well, I do know how it began. Was it cold? Yeah, it was cold. So cold, it was like an, a, a, a cold plunge of Coke. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember that what I was- That could be a new recovery thing that you could bring back as some weird like pseudo mystical thing because everyone wants to do a cold plunge and you could be like the first person who says a cold plunge with Coke could be the answer. If you'll do it first, I'm I not, will spearhead I'm, it. I'm not even cold plunging. I mean like to be honest with you, a giant- tub of coca-cola with ice seems very refreshing to me right now no like, no i didn't like, put the ice in i'm like thirsty thinking about <laughs> bathing in coca-cola somehow that's how fucked up it I was am. like pretty bad though that period though wasn't just the cool part of bathing in coca-cola like i had worn a trash bag so over my clothes sticky, though when you get out it was disgusting it's gonna it be horrible it was horrible in the tub yeah, yeah how many two liters does it take to fill up a tub Probably like, I think it probably took me 10 each time. That's expensive too. It was like 20 bucks. So $20 Coke bath. And then do you shower the soda off? Yeah. Gross. And you get, and your <laughs> it was so sticky. gross. Yeah. It was like one. How many it was like a stick. baths do you think you took? Definitely over five. Over five. Yeah. Wow. This is a totally new thing for the show. So thank you. <laughs> so, so at that time also I was making extra money. And I'm going to definitely place myself in like a jeopardizing position. But at that time, I was I was making side money by writing papers for college students in Brooklyn College. 
Right. And so like they'd pay like 200 bucks, 300 bucks a paper and, and you write it. And I was like, whatever, it's extra money. And I was up all night from all the other stuff anyway. What does like it matter? Giving your brain a little exercise. Yeah. Like I was in like, your childhood, uh, you'd take ketamine and run. In your adult years, you'd take Adderall and write papers yeah. for kids at Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. So I started doing that. And uh, look, to this day, I'm going to go with my experience of this story my aunt's desktop was probably hacked, right? Like it wasn't well protected. So when I would go back in and see the papers, there'd be markups on the papers. Well, with a lot of amphetamines, no sleep, no food, right away, you're like, something is happening. This is a conspiracy. And it caused me to go in such a tailspin to the point where I was like, Something is going on here. I'm being watched. It was like really dark, right? And then I convinced myself through this process that I was being poisoned, right? And like I was being radiated and every time they were watching me from the computer screen. Your aunt was? No, they. Them. Them. Through your aunt's computer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's deep, deep meth psychosis. Real deep, right. I was like really deep in it to the point that like I had worn a trash bag, like the black big trash bags, poked my hands out of them. I was like, showed up at my friend's house at 6 a.m. And I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, what? She's like, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. And I was like, yeah. I was. She's like, what are you wearing? And I was like, well, I was like, you don't understand. I was like, you got to protect yourself. And I brought her a trash bag. It's like hefty bags are the bag that blocks the, the radiation you know, because baths. the whole thing, the was whole world. Was there a brand world, of trash bag or it didn't really matter? No, hefty. Okay. Like whatever you have okay. available. It was just heavy duty, black trash bag you put over you to, like I was in such a deep psychosis. I mean, I was going into photons, neutrons, neutrons, whatever. Right. Like it was bouncing off of things and it was affecting us. It Like none of it was anything tangible this is this is what happens with amphetamines yeah i mean you hear it over and over and i mean we get thoroughly convinced of our delusion like this psychosis that we go into we get and and if somebody said to me it's not true the truth is it felt true to me which is true enough i mean like who cares if it's true or not right you believed it right i believed it so much so that I started to feel stomach pains. And instead of thinking of the logical thing I have in Aiden days, I was like, something's wrong. I was supplanted with something. And I went in a deep dive on this psychosis with that. I showed up at a hospital with, with a code on my hand for the doctor. And the doctor's like, what's wrong? And I was like, this. And I showed him a code and he writes it down and he comes back from the back. And he goes, listen, he goes, that's for a zebrafish clone. And I was like, exactly. What is a code for a zebrafish clone? I don't know. It looks what like. What does that mean? It's just like a, the, like a, like when you go through like NCIB papers or like whatever on What's the What's an NCIB paper? <laughs> They're like science, um, peer-to-peer review, like things. Like so nothing. how does he know what a, what a zebrafish clone I guess he is? Googled it and was like, what the hell is this girl doing? How do you, I don't even know what codes are for anything. Like how did you stumble onto a zebrafish clone I was clone deep code? diving on the web. 
I was, I was sure you were going to say that he gets the code and he's like, I have the place for you to go and just takes well, you to the psych ward. Well, no. So instead he's like, he's like, I think that you need to see a gastro doctor. He's like, and I think that you need to see your primary doctor. And I was like, he's on to me. And so I left. I didn't even wait for anything. I was like, I got to get out of here. They're on to me. So I leave. It keeps getting worse because I'm still doing everything I'm doing. And to the point in which my friends were like, I was in a bath of Coca-Cola and I had just drained it. And uh, they came to, at this part point, I was living in my apartment. I was living in the marital apartment. So I couldn't get an attorney to defend me in my court case in the divorce. Well, you in were the- in dude's house. In the husband. No, I took it in the divorce. So basically, I tried to find an attorney to represent me. He, because he was a heroin addict at the time and getting high, went and filed a false claim in family court with a very high-powered attorney that I abandoned my son. I didn't abandon my son. I had relocated back to Brooklyn, right? He had offered to take our son for a summer, So I could establish myself because now at this point, my kid is four and he has to start kindergarten. So I had to decide, was I doing that in Long Island or was I doing that in Brooklyn? Turns out he had offered after rehab to help me. And I thought it was the least he could do after four years of being absent, not realizing that he had relapsed during that time. So he had relapsed, filed a frivolous claim and I couldn't find an attorney. So I represented myself. Oh boy. No, I won. I won in, everything. In deep psychosis, you still deep did it. psychosis. It worked out really well in that particular because you learned a lot. I learned so much. I wrote the whole thing against us. We mediated. I took the marital apartment that was new at the time because that's what it was considered, and he had to give me a certain amount of alimony and child support. Was the agreement to stay out of court because I had all the evidence and so on. So my two friends show up. At the apartment, when I had just finished my Coca-Cola bath. Where's the baby? He was at school. So Of course he's at school. Yeah, he's in school. So they knew I wasn't feeling good in quotations. And they were like, we're going to take you to the hospital for your stomach issue. And I was like, okay. They're like, we have a doctor there waiting. Was this like their mini intervention? They were like... It was an intervention. They had me in a psych... They, Dina, I walked needed, Dina is crazy and we yeah. need to get her out of that apartment. No more Coke baths. No yeah. more garbage bags. No more drugs. Like they they took me to Bellevue. Wow. And... Uh, From Brooklyn. 5051 Hold. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that happened. And I was there for like 20 days. And your son went to the dad or to your aunt and uncle? Yeah. So the dad at this point was sober. Thank God. Yeah. He got sober through AA. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. He got sober through AA. And so he stayed local and made sure my son got to school. I was looking around me and was like, what the fuck? And I was like, they're going to try to keep me here forever if I take any of these meds. So I refused to take any medications. I told them I was calling a lawyer. I don't know what I was saying. Well, you were ready to defend yourself in the style that you had learned how to defend yourself. I was a great, yeah, I was a, I was a pro se litigant. I was going to represent myself, exactly. And um, yeah, so 
it was like 20 something days and it was horrific and it was scary and it was, I didn't think I was ever getting out of there to be honest. And when uh, they called my mom or something at that time and she said, you're exactly where you belong. Your mom said that? Yeah. And I was like, it's like okay. she had no right to fucking say shit about where you were at. I agree with you, but like, that's just what it was. Right. And so I was just like, I'm so fucked right now. And so I kept trying to say, like, I only had I had a nervous breakdown. Look at everything I've been through. But like, realistically, like I was definitely a drug addict through and through for many, many, many years. I just was a great performer and I knew what to say in order to help blend in how bad it was. And usually I tried to keep how bad it was the privacy of my own spaces, which was also reckless and dangerous, right? Like I can't tell you how many times I blacked out with like, you know, things in my hand or whatever. My son would see me on the floor like randomly and be like, mommy, are you okay? You know, like it was, it was pretty rough, but yeah. So they, they, ended up facilitating a 50-51 hold for 20-something days. Then I was released. Obviously, I didn't talk to them for a while. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going to become an attorney. That's it. And so I got myself all the way to the New York State Bar without having gone to law school. But I was doing, again, copious amounts of drugs, Adderall, cocaine, And I definitely could have went through with it, but there was like some like shiny hope or glimmer of hope, whatever you want to say, or epiphany. But I realized like I locked myself up in the bedroom for 16 hours and like I literally like just fed my son whatever, like didn't even pay attention. And I was like, this is, I'm going to die if I go through with this. I'm not following the story. Mm -hmm. Explain this to me again. So after I had won my own divorce case right. and I represented you myself. You decided you could be a great lawyer. And I'm I sure decided, you could. I decided I could be a great yeah. lawyer. And I and I thought that it was important to me. But what I realized what was important to me was power. Right. Right. And respect. Respect and power. Well, and money. You had proven, money, you, respect, yeah, right, and power. Right. You had proven all that shit by winning the case and by all the other little, you know, ventures you had had. The, and the and the before you married into that firm, like making big money there, every every turn right. was about money, respect, and power, and love. That maybe you could get love if you had money, respect. Exactly, and power. exactly. I would prove to the world that I was worthy of something, right. and then that would just ultimately get me the partner I had craved. Right. But what I had found was while I was going through this process. So I I did get to the bar exam without having gone to law school. And I could foresee myself being like in five years, a keynote speaker about how you could do it your own way. Right. And in the first lawyer to not go to law school or something. Well, since like the old times, right? Like, because I found a loophole right. and I showed a portfolio of applicability. I really did work for it. Sure. Adderall can really fuel a lot of fire. It did, exactly. And so, but what also it fueled was so much hyperfixation on this one thing where I realized like, oh shit, I'm neglecting my kid. Like I am a mom. And so the trade-off, what I realized in that moment wasn't worth it. But that didn't necessarily stop me from doing drugs or partying or anything else. It was just like, okay, I'm not going to do that route. It's not going to work. And I also realized that, like, I liked to date wealthy men. So seeking... Well, who doesn't? Yeah, seeking arrangements, like, started to pop pop out. And 
I was like, oh, this is great. Like I could be in a relationship where I know exactly what I'm getting and there's no hidden that's agenda. What secret, that's what sugar babying is. Yeah. I, I've heard of sugar daddies. I've never heard the sugar baby. Well, sugar daddy has the right. sugar baby. Right. Yeah. So how are those relationships? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're not attached to sex, right? So I never, I never looked at sex as part of intimacy. I looked at sex as like a primal act and didn't really attach any vulnerability or emotion to it. So for me, it was great because I was disassociated either way. Didn't really matter. The difference was like I was enjoying my time and being compensated really beautifully for it. And I was living a very lavish lifestyle because of it. Um, and so like I was fortunate enough to be able to not just like have these one-offs, like, I don't know, you sleep with a guy and you get like a few hundred bucks. Like I had like sustained relations and I only like really messed around with one guy at a time anyway, but I had like four really enjoyable relationships and did they like pay for your place? And Yeah, like one guy, like over the course of the year, gave me up to $40,000 of spending. How do, you get in, how do you get into situations like that? Well, you seek them out. But like, is there, was it a website? Yeah, there's a website. It was really great. Like the guy, I met the owner that created it. I was like, this is brilliant. You know, because here's the thing, like. Some People of, want this transactional equation. Yeah, they, they don't want the whole relationship uh, headache or like the commitment of it all. And so at that time for about five years, it really served me well to just figure my own shit out. Right. And like enjoy myself without the expense of like having to contribute to a relationship that I don't care about. Right. And you, and you were, did you split custody at that point? So no, in the divorce, I won full custody with joint visitation. So ultimately, I was the sole everything. But again, my ex-husband at that point, he remarried a woman named Dina. Same name. History repeats itself. Very interesting. Um, and they've, she's been sober longer than him. They actually met in the rooms of AA. And um, so, yeah, they were, you know, he was involved with my son's life as well. So, like, I had a little more freedom. Right. And I was kind of coasting because I wasn't really sure. I was like, oh, I'll be a yoga teacher. Oh, I'll be this. It wasn't until I, my mom died that I was like, I'm going to fucking go off the deep end. Like something's wrong. COVID had hit. Um, what do you mean you were going to go off the deep end? Well, I never really looked at myself as off the deep end. Right? Like I never, even if I was. I no, you were clearly off the deep end many times in the story. But why when your mom died do you think you felt that way? Because something inside of me broke. So leading up, COVID happens, right? I decide I'm not going to be a this thing, this thing, this thing, whatever. And How I was, was your using in that period? It was fine. It wasn't more or less? Or no, it was, it was consistent. But like when last we checked in with your using... You were wearing garbage bags and bathing Yeah, so clothes. I go to the psych ward, and when you come out of that, you're kind of like, damn, I got to do a better job at, right. at uh, like managing that. this. Right. So how did you manage it differently? Yeah, so I I think I got off the Adderall, right. but I was so still like doing- drinking, doing so clothes, I was, Yeah, yeah, I was still doing weed. everything else, but I wasn't taking Adderall daily. The Adderall is what really kicks- the, 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 That the, put me over the yeah, edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, everything put me over the edge. But in my head, I was like, if I take this one thing out so I never end up in a psych ward again, I'll, I'll sh I should be okay. 
but I didn't cut out everything. Because like the glamour of uh, the glamour that you wanted is not in Bellevue psych ward. No, that's the opposite. That was the scariest shit. It looks one way on the outside. You go in and you're like, I this. How bad is it? It was disgusting. Open got people with open lesions running around. Um, so scary, right? I was I was definitely scared. I didn't want to come out of my room. Of course. I was like, nope, like no way. Like and and it is not easy if you're on a 50-51 hole to get out of there. How did you get out? I just kept like I refused even Tylenol. I wouldn't take a goddamn thing because I was like, these people are never gonna let me out. Um I did all the things they said I needed to do. I kept saying like, I'm going to get an attorney if you don't release me. So they kept me for about three weeks, but it was scary. I was scared. It's terrifying. Yeah, I was. And like to be in that situation and not have any say, like you really, that is an eye opening thing. It's not like treatment where you're like, okay, I'm going to AMA. Okay, I'm done with this. It's like they get to decide what's going to happen. Three weeks seems like a reasonable amount of time. I mean, imagine if you're there three months or like longer. I mean, I, I don't want to imagine. Exactly. I'm glad you got out. I'm yeah. Glad you got yeah. Out yeah. In the three weeks. So you get out, you get, you get into this transactional relationship situation. Yeah. And that was enjoyable. At that point I was working as a tea purveyor. What's a tea purveyor? Like a person who specializes in tea. Nice. I learned all about tea. Nice. Um, and so that was really enjoyable. Like life was relaxing. Easy. Yeah, easy. it was relaxing and easier and uh, less stressful. You and were then, enjoying some of the finer things in life. Sure. Yeah. I mean. In a weird, in a loveless sort of way. Yeah. So uh, I was there for like two years and then COVID hit and the landscape of the world changed. Now, at that time, my dad and brother were part of AA. And I like the way you pronounce AA. You hit it hard. The first A hard. Do I? AA. You just say (laughs) AA. You say AA. You just say it in a real Long Island Jewish kind of way. Okay. I'll take it. So they. I was like, like, in the rooms of AA. (laughs) I, um, they were. Doing the whole program thing, right? They they went through the step work. And your they, brother was a heroin addict, and your father was a lifetime loser. Fuck up his whole life. Whole life. And now in the rooms of AA. In the rooms of AA, they found they got their, their shit together. Yeah, they found their way. And, and your I, mother had just died. No. So leading up to my mom's death during COVID, my mother was really sick. She had been sick for a while. From COVID? No, just in general, like the shit that she did to her body, she had like tons of illness um, that ended up being CPOD and like some other stuff, emphysema, I don't even know. And so we hadn't been talking for quite some time because I was going to write a book about my life. A memoir. A memoir. A fucked up memoir, but a memoir. And I remember she had come, the last time we had spoke before covid um, maybe a year in before she had come to my apartment. She said she wanted to give my son a Hanukkah gift. And then she had said, I heard you're writing a book. And I was like, okay. I was like, I do want to publish a book before I die. That is true. And she's like, well, if you use my name or any of our names, I'm going to sue you. And I was like, you would. I understand. And I was like, now you can leave my home. And she was like, why? And I was like, just get the fuck out. 
you know, and it's like, even in my own pain, she wanted a piece of it, you know, and I just couldn't tolerate it. So I didn't speak to her for quite some time. But, you know, with my brother and my father, they started going to the hospital to visit my mom and doing things like her laundry and food shopping. Your father did. My father, who she jailed multiple times and like was just venomous about. Did they ever have a relationship again after the split? Only when she got sick and he got sober. He, I guess, made an amends to her or something of that nature. And he decided his way of having a living and amends was to to be be of service. Yeah. And my brother did the same thing. And so they were going to the hospital to visit her, whatever. I went home to Long Island to see my family. And they came to my aunt and uncles and said, we wanted to talk to you, you know, we think that you should see your mother. It would be really nice. She was asking about your son. And I was like over my dead body. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Like I don't give a shit if she like drops dead and never sees him. And something inside of me, and I don't know what it was, was like, I don't want to look like a piece of shit. So I'm going to ask my son. And when he says, no, I can validate why I said no. Because he didn't want to do it. Right. So it's no longer on me. Right. How old was he at that point? My son was probably 10 at that point. Right. It's a lot to put on a 10-year-old's decision. Yeah. Well, I'm not well. Of course. Yeah. It's what it was. That was my best thinking at that time. I was like, yeah, this will work. I was also very manipulative, right? So if I can manipulate it to be my son, you can't hold a 10-year-old at fall. Totally. So when I asked my son if he wanted to go see, he calls her Safta, if he wanted to go see her, he had said, when I thought he was going to say no, he had turned around to me and said, sure, I'll go if you go. And that was the moment where I was like, now I have to show up and look like a good mom right. and go. So we, all, so I, I was like, okay, I conceded to it. Um, I met my dad, my brother. We all go to the hospital room, including my son. And I'll never forget that moment in time because I was in the hospital room and it was like the four people I love the most in the world, right? It was my mom, my dad, my brother, my son. And I don't say five because at the time I really couldn't get close to love. Like I couldn't participate in it. I couldn't engage it. I couldn't make a memory with it. Like I couldn't touch it, you know? And I just watched them like laughing and like having fun. And my mom didn't act like the person I remembered. She didn't seem like the person I remembered. And I just, I thought it was an act. So I was like, after we had left, I, you know, turned my phone on. I unblocked her number. And there was many times of blocking. And um, she had texted me and she said, thank you so much for coming. I hope, I hope you'll come back. That's nice. And right. But my first thought was like, fuck her. It was a one-time thing. And um, something wanted me to prove to my dad and my brother, the defiance in me and the to- like the toxic behavior is like, I'm going to prove to my dad and my brother that their righteousness, their kindness doesn't matter because she's the same. Right. So I went back on my own. To see her, to see if she was going to like talk shit. See what shit. she was going to be. Yeah. To, to see talk, if she'd be nasty. Yeah. Nasty talk shit. And, um, and we had fun. We laughed. You know, she was pretty sick, but uh, I don't know. Something had changed for her. She was trying to make peace with her life. Yeah. Something had changed for her and something softened in that moment for me. And 
You know, so every other weekend, me and my son would meet my dad and my brother, and we were going out there for a few months on end. And then the strict part of COVID and lockdown came, and there was like all these problems with the with the the home care place that she was at, the rehabilitation center. She was on a lung transplant list, but uh, the aide came in and had she had contracted COVID from the aid and she died within very grotesquely in like three days, four days. Why grotesquely? Cause she ran out. She couldn't breathe. Yeah. So the thing like in the beginning stages of COVID, it suffocates you from the inside out. You drown like internally. So she drown. died from COVID. She died from COVID and uh, it was really quick and it was really sudden and it was really sad because for the first time I got an opportunity to see, my family come together and talk about a future of like taking a family trip, not because they were getting back together, but just there was peace amongst us all. Um, and yeah, so we buried her within a few days. And in the time that I was staying with my brother on Long Island with the whole hospice and stuff, and um, we were making the preparations as best as we could. We We had never experienced this before, but he was going on AA meetings, and I remember him looking at me being like... You should come with me. Well, no, it was virtual, so he said, you you can share if you want to. And I was like, no, I'm not like you guys. But we bury her. The day we bury her, I was going to sleep there, and instead I wanted to go home back to Brooklyn. And uh, that night I got really fucked up, you know, just as fucked up as I can. I can't even remember it, to be honest. And... uh the next day, I called my brother and I was like, something's broken me, you know? And uh, he was like, great, come on a meeting. And I didn't share, but I listened. And I was like, this is kind of lame and stupid. And then the next day I went back on and uh, I think I shared, but I think it was like more performancy. Like right. I was just listening to what people were saying and I just kind of duplicated that because I was good at the chameleon thing. They said, like, get a sponsor and do the steps and do these things. And so I did. Like, I got a sponsor and I did the steps. But um, and I got a really dope girl. She had, like, tattoos from head to toe. She was a, you know, dirtbag like me at different points. She was, you know, all the things that I was. Single mom. I'm sure she like, never bathed in Coca-Cola, though. No, but she did some other crazy I'm shit. Sure and I was did. like, all right, this is my people, right. right? Like, I can relate to this. I can get on board with this. And so... We started to do some work together and had some spiritual conversations and, you know, but at about 90 days of being sober, and I mean sober for the first time in 30 something years, I, w I shut everything down. I was like, I'm done with this. Like, I'm, I don't want to do AA. I don't want to do any of this sobriety shit. I don't need it. I'm not like you. And I was actually going to go back out. And I remember in that pivotal moment, I shut down my phone. I told everyone I was done. I didn't want to do it. And um, I, I shut it all off and I called, I called my dude. And I was about to walk out of the house. And I remember being, and I was also on like this third step of the AA program, like came to believe in this power greater than yourself. Yeah. And I remember like the tears pouring down my face, looking up at the sky or the ceiling and being like, yeah, all right, if there's a God, you'll keep me sober tonight. And I remember being like really cocky, really condescending. And I ended up crying so much that I ended up falling asleep on my bedroom floor. 
and I didn't use. And I woke up in the morning and I turned my phone on and I mean, there was a bazillion calls and like text, but I, um, I called the girl that was my sponsor and I was like, I did something. And she's like, did you use? And I was like, no, this shit's way worse. She's like, what could be worse? And I was like, I don't know. I think I was like making fun of God or I was doing something. And like, I basically said like, if you stay sober, I'll, I'll do your AA program and I'll like help people and I'll carry this message and all this, whatever came out of my mouth. I was like real programming stuff. Yeah. And I was like, whatever, you know, I'll do whatever. What was the negative side of that in your head? I had to actually live up to it. Right. And that you made this deal and that you were going to, but, but it's like as a drug addict and I'll speak for myself, I made a, a million deals that I didn't follow up on. You know, my favorite thing in the steps was you make a decision, you know, you don't have to do it. You just have to make the decision. And yeah. like, and I was like somebody who made an infinite number of decisions that I never followed through with. So I was very comfortable in being like, I can say I'm making a decision, like, and using that as my method of doing it. So I hear that. And I think I, I 100% can relate to it. I think in that moment though, I came up against me and this idea about this power beyond myself because I never believed in it. It never shown up for me. And it showed up and it was profound. It was profound and it showed up and it was like, go ahead, challenge me. And you were like, finally, I see a decision that I want to stick with, that I don't want to give up. I didn't like how it felt to live sober, but I didn't like the alternative, how I felt not being sober. I'm just kind of taken aback by the fact that you felt like you'd have to live up to this decision. Like why? I don't know. Something inside of me was like okay, like it is real. There's something that is more powerful than I. I'm not the end all be all. I'm not the alpha, the omega. I'm not the, you know, I'm not, I'm not in as much control as I actually was like deluded to believe. And we all get the moment we need, you know what I'm saying? Like, and that was the moment you needed to turn the corner on this thing. And I also think that I was in such a broken space that I was like, if it could be true, if it could really work, I deserve to see. Like, I, I do deserve right, to live. Right, like, sure. like, I can't live the way that I'm living because I don't like it and it doesn't feel good and I'm not alive. And if there's this slight possibility and I don't check it out, like, I'm going to keep going on like this and eventually be dead from the pain that I harbor in my heart. Well, and they, they say rarely have we seen a person thoroughly follow this path and not achieve these results. And the results are freedom and joy and love and t- yeah. happiness yeah. and fucking good shit. Yeah. So it's like I, I had the exact same experience. You know, and I don't think AA is the end all be all. Like, I don't think it works for everyone necessarily, but that was the starting point to my path in sobriety. And through the years, it's changed. But, you know, the people that came to those rooms or the people in the recovery world, I'll say, it's not just the rooms of AA. It's not just a meeting. It is even this, right? Like you and I being strangers until we sat down and started to get to know each other in this podcast. Like there is something profound that happens here that is fueled by relation of love, right? Like you hear me, you get it. I feel seen. I feel safe. I could say anything. I don't feel judged. I'm not worried. That, whatever that is, 
and I look at it as love, like that for me saved my life. Me too. And then it allowed me to learn how to properly love not just myself, but the world around me. And today, like my life, it's not great just because I work at Mountainside. Like I've watched every decision, good or bad, place me exactly where I can thrive. It's like the acceptance thing, right? Is like we need to accept how things are like and, and no matter if it's not what you want, it's where it's supposed to be because it is there. And like we were just taking a break from recording and I was getting water and I feel like really overwhelmed in the yeah. moment. Like I have a day job and like my boss rarely texts me in the middle of the day job that he needs something, but he needs something. I have to finish this fucking show. I have to go home. Uh, I have to fly at 6.30 in the morning tomorrow. Like I have more to do than I feel comfortable doing. I feel overwhelmed. But is that the way it's supposed to be? I guess it is. So, right, and I think it comes down to perspective, right? The bigger our hearts become, the more we become capable to take these things on. And you can hear somebody say like, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think it's bullshit. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. co-sign it. Yeah. No, God's going to give you enough to keep stretching you. That's the deal. Like the deal is that our job as human beings, having thrived, lived, developed conscious, you know, awareness for our experiences, been able to overcome them, heal from them, help others. Like, yeah, you are going to be stretched thin. Is that okay? It's going to have to be. Right. And so, right. So it's going to have to be. And then the next time you experience this back-to-back -back sort of rush it won't feel as heavy as it does this time. And I agree with you that I don't think that AA or 12-step is the end-all be-all. It just no. happened to be a really good thing for me. And like, and I was down to do it and I'm, and I'm down to help other people through it. But I think that like, there's a billion ways to do it. Yeah. And I really appreciate you getting crazy vulnerable on our little show today. Yeah. I think you, you exceeded my expectations. So thank you for coming on. I had such a, unbelievable experience you did yeah oh that's great yeah so that was dina lafonte i would love to know what you guys thought about dina i thought she was great i thought it was awesome that she went so deep and was willing to uh bear her soul for the dopey nation that's the best. It's always great when our guests bear their soul like Dina did. So thank you, Dina. And I would love to hear the audience opinion. Send in emails, voicemails, uh, whatever you want to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I just got a message from Instagram that kind of, I don't know, I want to read it. It says, hey, not sure how into the fish scene Chris was, but in his honor, we lost another great one today. Antelope Greg. He was famous for riding the rail, dancing the front row. He was a big guy and would flail all over and claim his space like no other. Some say he may have seen the most shows of any fan. Anyway, he was a legend and will be missed. May we all run like an antelope out of control. So rest in peace, Antelope Greg. And I need to say that I don't think Chris was that much of a, of a fish head. I don't think so. He might have said he was, but he, didn't, he wasn't really. He was like an ambient music head and a bad flesh and bone head. And, uh, but, but rest in peace, Antelope Greg, and rest in peace, Chris. I bet Chris had a lot of fun at fish shows, though. I know that. Anyway, now my dad is calling into the show, so here's my dad. 
Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. You ready? Am I? Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, you don't want to do uh, the the uh, what do you call it? WhatsApp thing where it's on you can see things. No. Why do you? Uh, well, most likely the answer is yes. If I called you on what? Why? Well, for what? What do you need never to Never mind. See? I'm what here. You, what do you need to see? Just <laughs> your face when you make a face at me. All right. Anyway, I'm ready. What's up? Okay. So, so that's you think that'll make this better? No, I don't think it'll make it better. Everything is fine the way it is. You got any question you want to ask me? Yeah. Why? Why do you insist on coming back on the show? I don't insist. Well, your friend Ginny texted me. I think your father is depressed because he hasn't been on the show in so long. So I figured I would try to help you by have you come back on the show because you need all the recognition and uh, acknowledgement. Wait a minute. Is that really true? That's, she, she did that? She said, I'm very concerned about your father. He's been down in the dumps because you haven't had him on the show in so long. Ridiculous. He can't even that's, listen. He can't even. He doesn't know how to listen to it if he's true. not if he's not on the show. That is not true. <laughs> that's not true. She never did that. You're, you're, again, that's one of the topics I wanted to bring up. Fake news. That's that's making up. I thought you weren't a Trump fan, but you you've you've embraced his slogan of fake news. Well, that sounds like fake news to me. Well, I don't know. So, Dad, are you saying you don't? Welcome back to the show. First of all. How's Florida? How's your hip? How's your brain? Oh, uh, listen. I think I think my my hip is getting better and my brain is getting worse. I, uh, the, I, the hip is getting better, but boy, I thought I was going to be like perfect, but I'm not perfect. So I'm, I'm I'm still I'm still trying very very hard to get it better. I think the therapy guy really knows what he's doing, so um, I'm I'm doing it. Uh, and the real help I think is being in the pool. I think that's where you can do exercises and not hurt yourself. So anyway, yeah, I think it's getting better. So you had a hip, just for anyone who doesn't know, this is my dad. He had a hip replacement. He, like many other elderly Jews, travels south (laughs) to Florida for the winter. Tell us, uh, how is it not perfect? Well, Well, I tried to walk you know, like a long distance and it started to hurt again. I mean, really bad. And then I tried to play golf and then my back was killing me. So it turns out the solution was stop doing those things and rest. So I rested like, yeah. Do you think you're like the $6 million man that they gave you some hip that wouldn't hurt your back when you played golf before you ever ruined your hip? You couldn't golf for years anyway because of your back. Well, yes, that, that, yeah, listen, I told you, my brain is not working that well. So I'm supposed to know these things beforehand. But, uh, but I think uh, I'm feeling better. What the heck? And, uh, and right now I'm reduced to putting and, uh, and chipping, which means I don't have to turn my back so much at all when I'm doing that. Anyway, so what's going on? Uh, your trip to California was good, right? Yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was a whirlwind trip. I got a lot of work done. I don't know if it was worth the time or money, but it was a, it was a fascinating experiment. I think over the next few weeks, when you guys hear, you especially, hear the, the work, you could tell me if you thought it was worth it or not, and I can almost guarantee that you will say it wasn't worth it after we play the interviews, because that's how you are. 
You're not a well, very, you're, you're not, a, you're not a very, everyone says how supportive you are, but I, yes. I don't, I don't necessarily agree. Look, I am very, very positive. I'm a positive person. But when you keep asking me if I have criticisms of the show, I expect that you want me to tell you the truth. And obviously what I think is the truth. All right. So this last guy that you were on that was on last week, uh, he runs this uh, podcast called True and On. Is well, that, that, uh, this, that this sounds like you've really you've really done some you've done some preparation. So yes, yeah, yes, I, yes. So what what was yeah, your take? Uh, what was your take on Brace Belden? His name is Brace. All right. Well, I thought he was very quote unquote erudite. He spoke very well. He has a nice speaking voice. Hold on, hold on, uh, hold on, hold on. What exactly yeah. does erudite mean for anyone who might not know what it means? Uh, somebody who can explain himself, you know, very easily that people would understand him. So you can know, I ask you a question? Who, yes. Why would you use the word erudite when you know that most people won't understand you? That's not true. I, I have high respect for everybody to understand the word erudite. Yeah. I guess I, anyway, I, guess so I didn't know what erudite means. So yeah, you, well, you found yeah. him to be bright and well-spoken. Erudite, if right. you will. The, yeah. And, and of course, you know his his dopey story is uh, you know typical of you know pretty bad stuff, et cetera, that he seemed to have overcome. Uh, like he's nine years sober, I think he said, right? Something like that. I think so. Right. Anyway, but the real question I'm asking uh, underneath all of it is: Is he putting out stories that are totally phony, or is he, or is does his group actually put out stories that have some? you know, some truth to it. Or is his, his stuff just all this nonsense to get people to be upset, like conspiracy theories? Or you have no clue, maybe. Well, I've listened to a bit of it. As somebody who doesn't really stay as informed as the next person, yeah. I can't tell you if his stuff is based... I think it's got one foot in fact, one foot in belief. You know, it's like everybody has a different belief. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I don't stay that informed because it seems to me like there's so many versions of what reality are and his, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's totally screwy his stuff. Maybe you would, but it, it's based in fact, I mean, it, it's real stories. The first episode was very, uh, you know, I think it was, it was a huge splash for them and it was all about the Jeffrey Epstein story. And you know, yeah. stories like that, everybody has a take, you know, or the Hillary Clinton, uh, pizza gate scandal, or you no, know, there's no. all these. That wait a minute. That that Pizzagate thing is total nonsense. The the Epstein thing, yeah, it's a real mystery. How come the guy dies in front of prison guards there? And you know that 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 was a little mysterious. But the Pizzagate with Clinton is nonsense. I mean, hey, I'm somebody just, just saying, makes. I'm, I'm saying up. you're gonna say one thing, and ten people yeah. who hear the story are gonna determine. What is nonsense? You know, it's it's that's why I'm not interested because I don't feel like there is any, like it's hard to find truth. You definitely get well, opinion, and I think True and On uh, is from their point of view. But you should listen to it before we discuss it. Yeah, all right, that's true. By the way, I'm sort of making making. Uh, uh, did I even talk about me sending a message to the Glen Dive Museum people? You know, saying that I appreciate their views and that I think that they're they they are sincerely in belief of what they believe in. 
you know, and that they, and that, uh, I said that I would come up there and talk with them and they, and they said, yeah, please come on up and, uh, et cetera. So isn't, isn't that kind of weird? Hold on. Just <laughs> why, why don't you re re remind dopey nation what the Glen dive museum is? Oh yeah. In Montana, there's a museum uh, of fossils where they have uh, exhibits showing fossils that they have actually found right where they are because they, they're located in Montana where fossils are, are very prevalent, in, including, uh, you know, Tyrannosaurus rex, though I don't think they've found one. Anyway, in the museum, they show human, being, human beings living with, with the dinosaurs together. And the museum is based upon Bible teaching. Noah's Ark and uh, and Adam and Eve and etc. So of course me, based upon all all of my life, you know, teaching earth science and science, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, you know, this is nonsense. It's totally untrue. Humans and dinosaurs did not live together. The Earth is not six thousand years old. Uh, you know that there's no such thing that every animal on Earth could be on an ark. Uh, Etc. And anyway, so I have been sending messages to the museum, telling them that they really should change, change their attitude, and and have a museum that shows the truth. And also saying that uh, if they believe so strongly in the teaching of Jesus, that's wonderful because he his teachings are so beautiful, and that Jesus certainly, in my mind, would not appreciate of of his followers telling falsehoods. Anyway. So finally, I decided, you know, at least I would admit hold to on, them that on, maybe. Hold on, hold on, yeah. How have they responded to your, uh, your, I mean, it's also like you've become a nut writing letters to some <laughs> random museum in Montana. Why are you waiting? Well, like, you have nothing going on, Dad. That your, 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 your obsessions are fantasy basketball with Seymour, obsessed, yeah, and this fucking museum in Montana that nobody cares about except you. How did this happen well, to you, Dad? Remember what I told you, that I, if you asked me what would I wish for, and I said I wish that I was braver. And one of the things about being brave is to talk to religious people or to talk or write about religion and state that maybe it's a problem because it causes so much damage to human beings in many, many respects. Of course, it helps tons of tons of people. But when they keep when religion keeps putting out information that's untrue, somebody has to be able to say, gee, that's not right. That's not true. And me in my little way with uh, teaching and with this museum, that's exactly what I've, what I've been doing. Anyway, I may go out there and talk to these people, but again, I don't know how sane they are in terms of, ex- or even listening to somebody who has a different opinion. I'm sure the guy, anyway, I'm sure the guy at that museum has a son who has a podcast and he goes on the son's podcast and says, can you believe this wacky Jew in New York city who won't stop writing me these crazy messages about my stupid museum. I hope he comes and pays admission because nobody else is coming. Maybe Alan Mannheim will come and pay for admission to my museum. Yeah. No, the problem is that he has, he has people going there. He has, he has people coming to this museum who believe this stuff to be true. So you want to set up, you want to set up the first uh, summit between what what do you call your beliefs? Are they humanist beliefs? Are they yeah. their humanist beliefs versus his uh, old his old and new testament beliefs? 
Well, yes. I mean, I don't believe that there's any anybody sitting in the sky who's controlling what you guys do on Earth or what I do on Earth. I think humans are, are, are in charge of themselves, and I think nature is incredibly complicated, and I don't think you're... I don't think there is any deity deity that has done anything at all uh, to create this stuff. It's a major mystery. Where did everything come from? But uh, to believe in this God that controls everything seems to be pretty nonsensical. I think you maybe you should sense. you should we should go back and there was a, a suggestion years ago that you should start a podcast called Al-Anon, and it can be yes. Al-Anon religion. <laughs> And Al-Anon fossils and Al-Anon food, but you know, I I don't know if you follow Dopey Reddit, Dad. I don't think you do. But recently no. in Dopey Reddit, the latest post. Do you want to hear the latest post? Yeah, what was? Because you were talking about how you wish you were braver, right? Yeah, yeah. And the latest post um, is is talking about one of the braver moments of your of your long life. And uh, it says, it says, yes, it says, Alan's legendary Asimov burn. I'm just re-listening to episode 133 and felt the need yeah. to give Alan props for giving Isaac Asimov the business. It's so damn funny considering how kind and sweet Alan seems. The word there is <laughs> seems. If you're curious, yeah. he tells it. I mean, I'm sure the guy in Montana doesn't think you're so nice and sweet. If you're curious, he tells it around the 29-minute mark, and then then there's a couple of nice um, comments. And they say, one says, I love Alan. He is the quintessential Jewish grandpa, and his love for Dave is so inspiring. Now, Dad, why don't you revisit the legendary Isaac Asimov burn story? Well, I I I know it by heart. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of it's it's yeah. That's when I was pretty brave, but I also ran away from him. Just tell the have... tell the story again. All right, this Isaac Asimov was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant guy. He wrote like four hundred books. He was the, the first person to write about robots and uh, the first law of robotics. The guy was brilliant, and I taught his nephews. And at graduation. He actually came to one of the nephews' graduation, and then uh, we we had lunch or something afterwards. You know, the faculty you know uh, had lunch, and he was invited. And he started to make comments about how stupid teachers are, and how bad the school system is, and how bad the principal is. And anyway, so at the at the end, when we were saying goodbye, you know, I went up to him. And, and I said, the Dr. Asimov, Stranger in a Strange Land, is the greatest science fiction book I ever read. And he said, Heinlein wrote that. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then he walked away from me. Did that really happen, though, Dan? <laughs> yes. You did that? Yes. You disrespected one of the greatest science fiction writers of our time? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Why yes. did tell Ginny to stop talking? She has to get on the phone or be quiet because she's ruining the show. It's like well, you what? I'm gonna ask her if she said that I was depressed. Ask her. Ask her now. Depressed. Ask her now. Did, did you write him that? No, I think I said that you really missed being on the show. You uh, didn't say I was depressed or anything. It was all in the sub subheading <laughs> subtext. In other words, you made it all up. Subtext. That's, that's the subtext of Ginny's quote was, "Alan, his life is not worth living if he's not on the show. <laughs> so give him you a see, break." And have him come right. on the show. 
Dopey Nation. Do you understand how he does these things? David, you're, exactly, exactly. What's the difference between lying and exaggerating? Listen, she you said can, she yeah. said you could not handle life without the show, <laughs> so I wanted to give you a, a, a treat, give you a little bit of reason for living, and I'm happy that I got to do that. Do you have any more well, criticism that you'd like to add before you go? Yeah, I would. Let's talk about the most important thing, fantasy basketball. Oh, you are Jesus. messing up for me. How? You, how? If, if the blankety-blanks finish 1-2 because you have not played your guys. What do I have to do with, with the, how the blanks perform? Let me explain to you. If, in fact, you play your guys correctly, you could take one or two points away from Daryl. If you take one or two points away from Daryl, then I have a chance to finish in second place. Dad, you need something right else. Now, you, to, you need something else to do. Do you hear yourself? You sound insane. Can you can you do well, something productive with your life? People need to be fed. Dogs need to get walked. Kids need to get taught. All you care about is finishing in second place in this cockamamie. It's not even winning. Who cares? Well, that's see again. This just my competitive nature against the blankety blanks. Oh my god, we we have a whole stupid foundation that you could be coming up with in 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 ingenuous ways of of revolutionizing people's lives, and all you care about is finishing second place in a ridiculous fantasy basketball thing that doesn't even make you any money. Not even first place. Aren't there better things that you could be focused on than this? All right. Listen, of course I agree with you. Of course you're 100% right. But that that's just shows you that, that there's more to one thing in life. Listen, this fantasy basketball, of course, is total nonsense. But it's so much fun, and, and there's a chance – there's a chance, you know, that I enjoy it. I really like it. And, <laughs> and, and you, you were messing it up. Listen, the funny thing is, right, you often will say, you know, you're, you're, you've, you've, you're I mean, you turned 80 this year. You, you're, yeah. you're getting old. And you've often said to <laughs> yeah. me, you've often said, I, I, have ma- I have lived my life without making too many bad decisions, right? You've said yeah. that to me many times. And implying how bad the decisions I've made are. Implying that you have screwed up too much. Right. Now, now I'm noticing in your old age this obsession with this stupid fantasy thing. And it might borderline on uh, addiction. You know, deep Uh, compulsion. I mean, you sit at that fucking computer screen... All, I mean, he doesn't ask me questions about my life. He tells me I'm not playing the power forward in the right slot. That's all you care about. I would get involved in things like cooking. I mean, you need a new hobby. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I just made a delicious eggplant parmesan. I'm telling you, I got involved with cooking. And right. this morning, I, I tried to make pancakes and, of course, got messed up a little bit because the sous chef screwed things up. All right. Um, is, is there definitely. listen? Okay. Is there yes, any other? That's a note. Is there any other criticism of the show you'd like to share before we go? Uh, is there any other criticism of the show? Hold it. I don't know. I saw that. I already. I I'm looking at my notes, and on my notes. Oh yeah, there's one review. Actually, I have a review here. You're gonna read a review. Yeah, by Red Dog Comet. Okay. And five stars. Long time, and this is what he writes: long time listener, 
I've always thought the story behind this podcast would make an excellent book or movie. Someone needs to make this happen. So, so somebody actually wrote that as a review. So what's your comment? Well, it's in the works. It's in, it's in the works. It's in the works. How far along in the works is it has come? I think I mentioned it on the show, which tells me you're not really listening to the show. I heard what you mentioned. What did I say? You said something about the documentary is moving along. Well, and and there's it looks something. it's it's quite possible there's a very very um, well there's a successfully famous documentary series on HBO called the Telemarketers, and it looks like the director of the telemarketers might be interested in directing the dopey dog, which is very big wow. news. And in terms of a book, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's very hard to write a book. Yeah. Have you, I, know, I know. You know, um, it's, yeah. it's very, very, very hard to write a book. I plan on prioritizing writing a book proposal. I've been talking to some great literary minds who have made some good suggestions <laughs> on what I should do for a book proposal. But, um, I, I mean, I, I, I plan on making the attempt of prioritizing a better book proposal. Yeah, very okay. good. All right, Dad. Anything else you want to add? There, you know, there's a new... Yeah. I feel like a new review just came in. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. It okay. says, five stars for content, but this great interviewer, while keeping things light, heavy, funny fun and above all moving for us sober clean folks to be highly entertained even during the ads is unfortunately in my opinion a card carrying uber liberal with socialistic tendencies listening to the now deceased wayne kramer blather on about social justice anti-prison ever invite a convicted murderer to live in your home me neither made me want to shoot up through both eyeballs Though that's right. most likely already been about talked about on a podcast I've not heard yet. Politics and recovery is tantamount to withdrawal of your choice. Keep up the good shows. They can't all feature radical anti-American dead guitar players. I know it's neo-left, not like Clinton 90s dem Democrat friendly. How else would Dopey get this brilliant Hollywood mind to check in and name drop? Never mind. Dopey keeps us well. Wow. Well, anyway, I didn't hear that Wayne Kramer thing. Uh, I didn't hear. Is that what he's talking about, this reviewer? No, I think he might be talking about you. You're definitely no, not a, talking a, a card-carrying uber-liberal with socialistic I tendencies. I am not. I am not. I, 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 am, I am middle of the road. I am, finding, I am finding this fake news not only coming from far-right people uh, or, or from Trump, who is a complete liar. I'm also finding that these liberals are, are, are lying about things, too, that, that they shouldn't be, that uh, that's important. it's important to, to be, quote, unquote, rational when you're making statements and, and not make up stuff. This so, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not this wacko left-wing liberal at all. This might be the worst appearance you've ever had on the show, Dad. No, I think I've done worse. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Is there anything else? Oh, you know who's making his appearance back? I think he's going to be on the first ever new Dopey Tuesday show. You know who it is? Beats me. Who? Guess. 
Who do you think I would have as the premiere episode of the Tuesday show? All right, I'm going to give you, I can give you three or four names. I'll, I'll, I'll give you Artie Lang, no. Nick Reiner. No. Okay, I'll put two, right? Yes. Um, uh, Sam. No. No. Go for three. No. Okay, all right. I don't, uh, Ray. No. Oh, for four. Yeah. Okay, I give him two. Jay. Yo. Oh, good grief. Yep. Well, I, I I say good grief and wondering what the heck is happening. There's but I guess big, that's what's... big news on Fentanyl yeah. J that you can hear on the first ever episode of the new Dopey Tuesday show. And you think it's going to be next Tuesday? I think it's going to be this Tuesday. Well, that was, isn't today Wednesday? Right. Next Tuesday and this Tuesday <laughs> are the same Tuesday. They're the upcoming Tuesday. That's good. That's three ways of saying next Tuesday. Okay. It's this Very- Tuesday. Next Tuesday is the Tuesday after this Tuesday. This Tuesday is the next Tuesday coming. So then, so why do you be upset when I say the next Tuesday? Because next, next Tuesday, Tuesday next listen, Tuesday. you're an 80-year-old man. Next Tuesday <laughs> is the fucking Tuesday after this Tuesday. This Tuesday is this Tuesday. Next Tuesday is not this Tuesday. <laughs> but Tuesday was yesterday. So the next Tuesday is... is no, Tuesday. ask Ginny. Ask Ginny. Get Ginny on the phone. I'm talking about yesterday... I would call it last Tuesday. Right. The last Tuesday. But would you say so this Tuesday next or one? next Tuesday? For the next one? Next Tuesday. No, next you say Tuesday. this Tuesday. When do you so when do you say <laughs> this Tuesday? You never well you well, can we're closest to yesterday, which was the closest Ginny, Tuesday. Jenny, you are a sick person. You co-sign everything my father says. You don't say this Tuesday when you talk about yesterday. You say this Tuesday when you're talking about the upcoming Tuesday. When you talk about yesterday. Oh, my God. You guys are living in an insane asylum. When you're talking about yesterday, you say yesterday. You don't say this Tuesday and refer to yesterday. When you're talking about the next Tuesday and you say this Tuesday, it is the next Tuesday. No. It's all. You can the next Tuesday and this Tuesday, in your mind, is the same thing. No. Course- the next Tuesday <laughs> is the Tuesday after this Tuesday. <laughs> That's wrong. Are you sure? Don't talk to, tell the dopey, the, the dopey Nation will set you straight. Dopey Nation. If today is Wednesday, if the, today is Wednesday then the next Tuesday is when your show is going on. Let me ask it's you not- this, Dad. First of all, yes. In, if you're listening to the show, today is not Wednesday, unless you're listening next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, oh. you can say next Wednesday when it's Wednesday. <laughs> Shush, just be quiet for a second. Let me, let me ask you a question. Let's, out of argument's sake, today is called Wednesday, correct? Yes, it is. So when is next Thursday? Tomorrow. No, it isn't. Next Thursday is the Thursday after tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. No, it's, not. it's tomorrow. You, you, I retirement, tomorrow. retirement, and sunshine has softened your brain. All right, all right. Now you be quiet for a second. All right, Dopey Nation. If today is Wednesday, when is the next Thursday? It's tomorrow. No, that I know, I know. Tomorrow is the next Thursday, but it's not called okay. next Thursday. Next Thursday would be a week from tomorrow. <laughs> Well, look, I think Avin and Costello could have done this. All right, enough of you. 
Uh, Ginny, you got to you got to run a tighter ship over there. I think you got to put him in. I think you're letting him get a little a little too much leeway. A little too much. I think he feels a little too good about himself out there. Um, well, what? Yes, wherever. Yeah, Sean, this is down. All right, anyway, yeah, down there. I pre- that I agree with that. It is down there, and it is next. Maybe it's, you're, so. You're saying this Tuesday and next Tuesday are the same Tuesday. Pretty much. If you're if you if you're speaking on a Wednesday, then next Tuesday is the same as what you're saying this Tuesday. Okay, but cha- okay, oh, for, okay. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I agree with that. <laughs> we'll say that this Tuesday and next Tuesday are the same. But if you're saying, shut, just listen, listen. But if it's Wednesday, right, and you're talking yeah. about next Thursday, are you talking about tomorrow or the following? Well, if I'm on, if well, usually you're right. I mean, if, if it's Wednesday and you're talking about tomorrow, you would say, okay, tomorrow. You wouldn't say next Thursday because it's so close. You would say tomorrow but is what, Thursday, But so what I'm would gonna... next Thursday be? A, a week from tomorrow. That was my whole point. By the way, that's yeah. it. That's my whole. Yeah. But you're saying on Wednesday, this Tuesday, and next Tuesday are the same. Probably, yeah. I think you're probably wrong. I think I'm lost track of what we're talking about. Right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get back to the. Mo- right, listen. the yes. Nothing. I, I just want to say goodbye to the Dobie Nation and uh, everybody stay happy and healthy and uh, and toodles for Chris. Now, on a scale of one to ten, ten being the best appearance you've ever had. And one probably being this appearance. Where would you rate this appearance? Minus two. You would rate this as the <laughs> minus two. And, um, and and please keep us informed on the dinosaurs and what's happening in Montana. Are you and Ginny going to go out there and stage a little protest, a little humanist protest at the Dinosaur Museum? Ginny uh, wants to, but I have to do more research and make sure I can I can deal with them. I don't know. Anyway, and maybe you should can re- consider your responsibility in being a good fantasy basketball player. And right. I mean, tell me, you know, tell me again, <laughs> tell me again what I have to do, please. You have to look at the guys you have on your team and notice that you are going to run out of space. You're not going to be able to play a guard, a forward, a center, because you're playing too many. And in some other categories, you have way too much room where you're still not going to be able to play. In other words, there's only 22 games left. So if you have played only 40 games, you you got to play those positions more. And the positions that you've played 70 games, you got to stop playing them so that you could have something left over at the end, at the last week. Because they, they right now these coaches have to play these guys. No, but you know, specifically, they, because, specifically, you're saying play the forwards in the utilities position. I think that's where you need to really play it. And also you could check Daryl's Daryl's thing and see where maybe you could do something to over get a point away from him. I don't know how somehow. to do it. I, I don't care. But you can tell me what to do and I will try to I will try to implement your strategy. Very good. All right. I will I will send you whatever the texting is called. Okay, I got it. You send right. me what Very I'm supposed good. to do. I will implement your strategy. Thank you, Dad for coming on, yeah. taking your time. Yeah. Uh, Ginny, thank you as well. And um, mm-hmm. does she hear me? Or now she's gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Why doesn't she say thank you, David, or you're welcome, Dave, or anything? <laughs> it's a pleasure, Dave. Every moment spent with you is a pleasure. I feel Isn't that same. wonderful? I feel the same way. 
No, Jenny, uh, Jenny, what were you just saying? My dad was saying that we should take out the part where I called him depressed. And Jenny, what were you saying? Right. No, you, you alleged that I said he was depressed. Well, I think you, you implied you implied his radical depression for not being included on the show. No, you read into my message saying simply that your dad was kind of missing being on the show. He loves being part of the Dopey Nation and the show. That's, so that's you read into that something that's untrue. And I honestly, if you could see him sitting in the sunshine and frolicking in our community pool where he's been taking some minor swimming lessons... You would know he was full of joy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm full of joy. Ginny, he's definitely full of something. But Ginny, did you know? <laughs> did you know that when he listens to the show, if he's on the show, he'll skip everything just to find his part. Oh no, kidding! He'll say to me, "Listen to Dopey with me," and I go, "Okay." And then he gets on there and goes forward, forward, forward. Oh, okay. Here's the part where he <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you yeah. do know. Oh yeah, I know. Radical yeah. self-centeredness. Radical self-centeredness. Anyway. Well, it's, it's, I, it's intertwined with pride for you. Yeah. See, it's if he only would, no, no, no. If it was pride for me, <laughs> he would play a part that he's not on. I listen to the whole thing. Oh, boy. Here we go. I listen to it. He does. He listens to the whole show eventually. Right. But the first thing he wants to know is how did he sound. Exactly. Well, All right. And it is true that he replays some of the special ones over and over. But that's not true. Which yeah. ones? Wait, which ones does he replay? I do not. Well, he, he, he kind of likes the ones where someone writes a... a an email or a, you know, a review that says, and Alan is the best part of the show. Right. He likes that. Part. <laughs> he likes that part. How about the Isaac Asimov story, Jenny? What do you think about that? Well, I don't know that I ever heard that one. Oh, I, oh he's told me that story personally. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he's an interesting guy, your dad. He's like a quiet, silent type till all of a sudden, like when he got brave enough to sort of insult that guy, it was because the, Isaac had insulted the oh, yeah. staff of the school. Yeah. So he was being his braver self when he came up with that brilliant way of a backhanded insult. And I also ran away before he could come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. Thank you, guys. I appreciate uh, you being on the show. And, Ginny, I appreciate you uh, giving my dad a, a life. So thank you. And say stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Yeah, love, love to you, Davey. And uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. All right, all right. Thank you. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this aeroplane just pass me by and I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had 
And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I wanna be good so bad wanna be good so bad so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desires, all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and I wanna call my dad. And it's all I ever had. 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 And these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And I wanna call my dad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had.